Wanna go, pretty boy? Two minutes by yourself and you feel shame, you know, and then you get free. Anything better than a glass of beer is tea with Miss McGill. Oh. <laughs> And welcome to the Fourth Line Voice Podcast. My name is Darren. Thank you very much for tuning in to episode 12 of the big show, some enforcer-based podcasting coming at you. Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. And it's another Sunday, so you know what that means. We're going to open the vault for an old player interview that I did on my old website. And uh, today will be Dean the Machine Mayran, uh, LNAH legend. Of course, the winner of the Hockey Enforcers pay-per-view tournament. And for anybody listening that's like, what am I, what is Darren talking about? Well, go to my YouTube channel, Fourth Line Voice on YouTube, over 2,000 fight videos. Subscribe. I'm putting up new content all the time. Uh, anything you're looking for, old Junior A, Western Hockey League, OHL, LNAH, AHL, NHL, MOUSE, check it all out. It's all there. You can just type it in on a little search engine. I've got it all sorted. Got some Dean Mayrad fights on there, but if you type in Hockey Enforcers, it uh, it was the pay-per-view event from 2005 that was in Prince George. They wore UFC gloves, and they, it, was a, it was a fight tournament. So yeah, and uh, Dean won it. I just, spoiler alert, I just wrecked the whole event for you. But you should check it out. Actually, he fights Mike Segroy in the final, and uh, it was a great tilt. But to top it all off, get this one, the other day... In the mail, Dean sent me, and I opened, and I didn't know he was doing this, and I opened it up, and it was his jersey from the event, the blue one that he won in the final. It's all ripped to shit and stuff. What a piece of enforcing history. Uh, the one and only pay-per-view winner's jersey. So that was really cool. Dean didn't have to do that. It was, uh, um, so it'll definitely have a special place here at Fourth Line Voice headquarters. And, uh, he also sent Alec over at the five for fighting, uh, his gray one. So that's, uh, it was Santa Dean. I can't. Uh, I can't thank him enough. And uh, no, that was really cool. And uh, and and it goes. And I and I'll say. And I was saying it uh, uh, privately to a friend of mine. But <clears throat> that's been the great thing here on um, with the podcast and on Twitter. And I've, I've met so many great people or got to converse with so many so you know fellow fans and the players. And <clears throat> uh, it's been really cool. And as much of you know, you bitch about social media and the cesspool, and it's a cesspool. I mean, whatever. Um, there's always the 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 good about it as well, and I think sometimes that gets lost um, as we, you know, with the events that are going on and just the daily nonsense that's that is social media. Um, the good of it gets lost sometimes, and uh, and like I said, I've all the players that I've had on my show have been great, and it was always fun talking to them. And, um, and, and like I said, the fans from Alec and Steve and Chris and, uh, Farmer Rob and, uh, you, you know, Nicholas and I mean, everybody, I'm going to call everyone's name cause I, you know, I can't do that, but be here all night, but no, everyone's been great. And, uh, you know, 
<clears throat> and then, you know, and I, you know, I try to help out when I can, you know, I send out fight DVDs all the time or hockey cards or whatever. If something, if I find something that I know, I think one of my fault, I hate using the word followers, but you know what I'm saying? One of uh, a follower would like, I'll send it to them and, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, like, the pay-it-forward kind of thing. And uh, even if it's just something small and what somebody else might think is junk or, you know, or whatever, I mean, to someone else it's a big deal or, you know, that's what they collect or, you know, and I and if, I don't know, if you can, you know, whatever, I think in this time. And I think whenever you can help someone out, you should. And, uh, you know, and I and I think it's... Uh, you know, in any any just a small gesture, I think is it goes a long way with people. And um, yeah, no, it was just uh, it was just really cool. And I, and I, you know, can't thank Dean enough. And uh, you know, um, and then with the with the episodes, I mean, I was I was getting after the Curtis Swanson uh, interview that I did. I've had a bunch of people ask me about more LNH content. I mean, it's such a fascinating league, and. And, uh, you know, people want to hear the stories behind it, you know, because there's always, oh, the Hells Angels were involved with a mob or this or that. And, you know, there's the urban legends. And, and then there's some, you know, this is definitely some real stuff, too. Um, so definitely uh, Dean, Dean played there for a number of years, and he had some great stories in this interview. Um, you know, plus uh, it was so interesting in the summer. He spent the summer on the movie set of The Love Guru with Mike uh, Mike Myers and, and Justin Timberlake, as well as Bob Probert. And he talks about hanging out with Probert then for the summer. And uh, so it was a really it was a really cool interview. And and Dean was great and uh, tells lots of good story inside stories and uh, from fighting Bosse and Morasti. Well, he didn't fight Morasti, but having John around and uh, on the same team and. And everything, it was really cool. And, uh, and, and since then, um, you know, I, I, I talked to Dean sporadically here and there and he, uh, he opened up a boxing gym in Cold Lake and he's making a big comeback in the, in boxing and, you know, staying in shape and, uh, it lo- looks great and he's fighting and, uh, of course with the coronavirus, you know, <coughs> pardon me, kind of, uh, shut all that down for now, but, you know, slowly getting back up and going here and, uh, you know, and I know his. He was saying his gym was doing, uh, you know, before like before all this was going, it was it was doing quite well. So hopefully it'll come back strong here. And uh, but I know he's been, he's been working this whole time and doing good. So that was good to hear. But um, yeah, I'll just it's a it's a vault episode. So I'll shut up and get going. I just uh, I just wanted to publicly acknowledge about the the jersey and stuff and and thank all you guys for listening um you know like i said the ratings have been great and oh i wanted to bring up my last episode episode 11 um honestly guys i when i was putting it out it was kind of a rush because i was up at the lake and then doing other stuff and you know there's every wednesday every once in a while it sneaks up on you and you can't believe it's it's tuesday night and you haven't gotten anything yet um Honestly, you know, with all the events and everything going on in the world, it was, uh, I just really wasn't feeling it. I just, you know, but at the same time, I didn't want to, you know, like I made a commitment to do it every week and, and it was a little too, and it was just late to back out. And, um, so I did the episode and, um, you know, and I think you can hear it in my voice. I, I I was, I, I don't want to say I mailed it in, but it was kind of, it was hard to get through and, um, you know. But uh, I did a top ten for the Blades fighters, and of all things, I forgot Adam Huxley. Like, are you kidding? Like, I went and scrolled their all-time rod for whatever reason. I'd have, like I said, my head was up in the clouds, and uh, yeah, so Huxley would have totally made my list. So uh, I don't think he does. But if he did happen to listen, or someone said, "Hey, this this asshole back at Zaz dude made a top ten list, and you're not on it," 
No offense, you would definitely be on it. And uh, I felt bad for leaving him off. My friend Chris brought it up. He's like, no Huxley question mark and a text. I was like, oh, that's right. Brutal. So, yeah, like I said, I think I was daydreaming on that episode. But if you want to hear other episodes where I'm not daydreaming in, go back and check out, I, like I said, I have interviews with Morasti and Wingfeld, McMorrow, Tedarenko. Um, they're all up. Steve, Big Steve McIntyre. Then, of course, you know, my other episodes might... Um, when Probert was king with Steve, we, we discussed his top 25 fighters of all time. And that created a lot of controversy and a lot of talking. So that was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, and like I said, I was on the Bucket Drop podcast with old Bobby Longgrass. Old Rob there, go check that out. We do, we talk about the top 10 Montreal Canadian fighters. Give him a listen. And, uh, I think he just, he just had Alec on last night. They talked, or the other night, and they talked about Tampa Bay top 10. So lots of lists, lots of top 10s lately. But people dig the top 10s, right? Everybody's, everybody loves lists, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, they're fun to do, except if you miss Adam Huxley, then you look like an idiot. But, uh, yeah, but uh, like I said, YouTube, Fourth Line Voice on YouTube. I'm on all the platforms on iTunes, Spotify. If you could rate and review the show, it helps me out. I know I say that all the time, but really, it'd be great. And like I said, in the network, got Terry Ryan, Brady Liebold, um, all the NHL uh, teams are are uh, represented here on the network. So whatever team you're a fan of, check it out. They got they got the show for you. And um, other than that, uh, you know, of course, Alec over at the Five for Fighting. Um, just released his Pete Vandermeer interview. Um, I can guarantee it'll be better than the Spit and Chiglets one. Mark my words. Uh, check it out. Like I said, we're uh, we're the mom and pop shops of podcasting, so support local. You know, like I said, hey, I like Chiglets, I like the boys, you know, whatever. But there's other hockey podcasts besides Spit and Chiglets that are that are good. So uh, I I recommend checking out everybody. You know, Dan Kelly and uh, Paul over at Obey the Puck Show. They just moved to a different platform, so um, definitely check them out. Uh, get the gate, Slewfoot Hockey Show, all the all those guys. Like I said, everyone's out here, uh, you know, trying to find their voice. And uh, oh, I know there's only so much time in the day, but hopefully you guys can give everyone a listen. But uh, here, here uh, I'll get going here with uh, my episode with Dean the Machine Mayrad. Thanks for checking out. I think you guys will really dig this, and I will uh, talk to you on Wednesday. All right, thanks, guys. My guest today is uh, Dean Mayrad. Uh, Dean, how you doing today? Oh, not bad. Listen, I just want to say thanks for having me on. I appreciate it a ton, and I really appreciate what you're doing for all the little guys here and giving us a chance to have a platform to tell our stories. No, man. Like I said, I uh, I, I appreciate you for taking taking the time to. Uh, I know you've listened to a bunch of the episodes, and which is uh, which is always great to hear when the when the boys listen to your show and. Uh, and uh, I know you've given me some positive feedback, which was which was great. And uh, no, man, I mean you got a hell of a story here. And I and the, for the folks listening, this is going to be, uh, you know, we're going to talk uh, kind of Western Pro, some uh, some crazy Quebec League stories, but also on top of that, uh, in what year was it? Two thousand five, the Black and Blue show was. Was it oh five? Wasn't it? Yeah, that was two thousand five. Yeah. yeah, the two thousand five, the Black and Blue Hockey Enforcers Pay Per View, which you were the uh, the winner. And uh, we'll talk about that. And for anybody wondering what am I talking about, if you go to my YouTube page, I have just type in Hockey Enforcers Pay Per View, and the whole event is on there. And uh, and you'll you'll it's this will be the companion piece. This will be like a what is the DVD commentary? We're gonna get Dean's thoughts and we'll get the inside scoop behind that whole crazy scene, as well as uh, your uh, your Hollywood summer. 
hanging out with Mike Myers <laughs> and Justin Timberlake. We'll get into all that, but uh, that that'll be a tease for the listeners. You gotta you gotta stay tuned here. But uh, okay, so uh, you were uh, well. We'll start right from the beginning, right? So uh, I I know you had mentioned when we were uh, uh, talking on the phone earlier that uh, you were a late starter in hockey. Uh, so you're from out from Ontario. How did that whole How did your whole hockey saga begin? Yeah, from Amherstburg, Ontario, and uh, I, I always loved the game. I think I played like a half a season when I was uh, five or six and just didn't love it, and I was from a little bit out of town, and it seemed like all the, the guys from town, they had their own clique, and obviously I wasn't as skilled as everyone else, so I didn't play again until I was uh, 14, I believe, and I always played on the creek and uh you know, played ball hockey and always loved the game. My brother was a really good hockey player. He played from when he was six. Uh, so I was always a bit of a rink rat. I just never had the confidence to uh, to go out and do it my, on my own until I knew I was, you know, good enough skater and could perform well enough on the ice. Yeah, well, like you said, and, and uh, um, at four, well, so were, were you into, I know now you're, you're big into the boxing and everything else. Were you a, like a, like a combat sports uh, kid growing up, or did that come later? Uh, so, like, I fought, like, in school and stuff like that, but it was more of a situation where it was survival over anything else. It wasn't like I was going out picking fights, but uh, uh, as far as the boxing is concerned, uh, I did I did box for about three months when I was, I think, 11 or 12, um, and... I did well at it, but I was sparring against a kid who was three years older than me, and he, he used to beat the piss out of me, so I, I didn't really love that too much, so I backed out of it. And it wasn't until I went to Quebec that uh, they were holding those boxing matches in the summertime that I started really digging into the boxing. Okay, yeah, but uh, so when, like, when you stepped on the ice in, in, in Junior C, um were you like just naturally aggressive to it, or did you kind of? I mean, you're a big dude, six five, and you know, I mean, back then it was like pretty well. You know, did you kind of get talked into the role, or did you accept it right away? Or no, okay, so uh, I'm not six five, by the way, and I, that's actually a pretty funny story. So I'm six two and a half. Uh, holy shit! The <laughs> hockey DB is pumping you up. Holy, yeah, you're gonna love this. So. I forget his name, but when I first signed in Tupelo, the guy who picked me up at the airport, he's like, uh, to add to your intimidation, I'm going to make you 6'5 on the program. But I was never 6'5, and that actually stuck with me for years, and a lot of the teams that I played for, they actually put me at 6'5, and I think even in the hockey enforcers, they had me listed at 6'5, but I wasn't 6'2 and a half, like I said. Huh, well, there you go. There you go. It, well, and it's strange, because, like, I mean, obviously I've seen... Tons of video. It's hard to tell on video, actually. But you, fuck you. you always look bigger than mostly everybody that you're fighting. So I know you're a pretty jacked up, dude. Though I know that for sure. But uh, so maybe that's why you just look bigger than everybody else. But uh, there, there was a time in uh, in the Quebec League, I squared off against Jamie Linehouse, who was the captain of Sorrel when I was playing for the Mission. And uh, as we squared off, he looks at me and smiles. He says. You're not 6'5". Like, as we're squaring off, which is hilarious, right? And, uh, no, I looked at him and I said, no, buddy, 6'2 and a half. Yeah, the, the La- there's, there was a tough group. The Lahonas boys. They were pretty tough bastards. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Those boys were tough. Isn't one of them a lawyer? 
Yeah, Jamie's a lawyer, and one of my best friends still to this day. Yeah, because he was. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, man, he was a uh, he was bad dude, man. Um, and he was like he was technical, like, uh, and and he wasn't afraid to even fight the number ones, and he wasn't necessarily a number one guy, but he he was confident enough in his ability technically to to face those guys and to like weather the storm, tie him up, and then throw when he could. He was a smart fighter, and he broke it down. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're gonna get him. We're gonna get into him and and the rest of the crazies in that league in a, in a bit here. But uh, so yeah, no. So you start off in, in junior. Like I said, so did you kind of gravitate to the role right away, or did someone push you into no, it? Okay, so, yeah, it, it was it was just something that was in me from day one. It wasn't. Uh, yeah, like I, I. That's something that I was never. I was never shy to throw myself into those kind of things and, you know, big hits and I always had the balls for it and uh, we'll get into this more, but I struggled with balance and with uh, things like that to start with, but I always had the balls for it. Yeah. Um, so while, so in June, so you're playing in, um, now I, I'm in Kingsville, right? With the Comets? Kingsville Comets, yeah, which was such a good organization to play for. Uh, Richard Robson was my coach and, uh, Dave Wiper and they were like instrumental in just how they respected me as a as a leader and as a team guy and obviously someone who would uh, put myself out there for the team when needed be. I just had such a great experience with that uh, with that organization and Todd St. Louis, who's been on your show as well, he yeah, played yes. for that organization as well. Yep, yep, and uh, well, see, yeah, talk about the segue there. We'll uh, Todd's going to come up here right away, but. Uh, so you're, so in Kingsville, like, how did your flight, like, did you have kind of some, uh, I know you said you had balance issues, but did you have some initials? Obviously you had some success in Kingsville in terms of fighting. Did that sort of, uh, uh, really, uh, mot- obviously it motivated you and, uh, like, did you have, did you, did you, well, okay, put it, th- I'll go the other way with this question. Did you ever take any beatings and start wondering like, fuck, do I really want to do this? No, actually, so, uh, I forget that, I forget the guy's name. He played for Essex, but we'll get into that in a second. So, I was a big fish in a little pond in, in junior C. Like, I never played junior B or junior A, so I was a big kid who was tough, who didn't have to fight, like, guys like Jeff Kugel, right? Or, I mean, uh, you know, some of the other guys, like, you know, DJ Smith or, uh, you know, any of those guys. So, I, I, I succeeded well as a fighter in junior C, but there was one guy who played for the Essex 73s. He was a tall guy, 6'5", and uh, we had a really good one, and I'd say he got the better of me, and I, I was the guy to beat at the time, and he did really well against me. It was in Essex, too, so uh, it was a good fight for him. I just forget his name. But he was leg- but he was legitimately 6'5". <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he sure was, yeah. Okay, well, so so you kind of rolling, and at that point, did you see a future in hockey, or was this sort of well? Uh, that's where Dave, that's where Dave Wiper and Richard Rothschild come into play. Like, I was working tool and mold at the time, which most guys in Windsor, Ontario, they either bust into the big three for GM or Chrysler's, or they get into tool and mold. And uh, man, I just remember watching these guys punch in every day, thinking. 
oh, do I want to be doing this? Like just coming in every single day with, you know, no life in them and having to put this kind of time in. And I wanted to see the world and experience something different. And that was my tiny little light at the end of a tunnel. And I just, I needed to take a run at something and, and hockey was it. And Richard Lofton, uh, after my, it was my first year with Kingsville, he said, Dean, if you wanted to, you're tough enough and you're, you know, decent enough skater, you could probably make a career in the minor leagues uh, as a as a tough guy. And that, that, to me, at the time, like, no one could have said anything better. Like, it, it was, like, I literally lived and breathed that from that day on. I woke up thinking that, and I remember talking to other teammates, and there were guys that actually, they looked at me and laughed, like, you think you can actually play pro hockey? Like, it was, uh, it was something that, and all those doubters is what, motivated me to move move forward right absolutely and uh well so the next the following year so it's 1999-2000 we got the uh the western professional hockey league and you end up in tupelo with the t-rex how did that all happen okay i'll take a step back here so the year before uh as an overager in uh in kingsville uh, I was the assistant captain, and I was ranked uh, toughest hockey player in Essex County, which had uh, the Windsor Spitfires were in that, the Leamington, uh, Leamington Flyers, Junior B, and then Tecumseh Bulldogs, which is Junior B, and then there were a couple different Junior C teams that were in that. So when I was ranked toughest hockey player in Essex County, that was a pretty big thing. So I ended up uh, contacting an agent, that year and he got me a trial contract with Tuplo um, and like I said it was only a trial contract so there was no guarantees like I had to go and perform and uh, and put on a show so that uh, that I could make the team and uh, George DuPont with uh, he was the coach Tuplo at the time he loved me and I had a I had a good camp my very very first fight was Todd St. Louis which is super ironic because he's from Windsor and played for uh uh, Kingsville Comets, and I remember squaring up with him in uh, in Tupelo. He was playing for Arkansas, and uh, I asked him to go, and he said, "You're you're a Windsor boy." He's like, "I'll do that for you. Let's go, kid." <laughs> pretty good. How'd the fight go? I think it was pretty average. I mean, I don't I don't think I got the better of him, and I don't think he got the better of me. And I, if that's not not something I like saying, but you know, obviously, someone some fights you're happier about how you performed than others, but I think it was pretty average. I think, I mean, I did good in showing up and, and performing, but nothing too extravagant. It's not like I dropped him or anything. No, I, I don't, I don't say, I know Screwy's going to be listening to this. So I just wanted to bust his balls for a sec. <laughs> and he's a, he's a beauty. I love that guy. I listened to his podcast with you. He's a uh, true beauty. Oh, he was great. Yeah, no, yeah, he was, uh, no, and hopefully I'll get him back in here. And, uh, yeah, he has some tails. That's for sure. Um, well, well, so here you got you hop on the plane. You here you, Dean Mayran in Mississippi. What were your impressions of Tupelo? Oh, it, like just just saying that brings me back. Like uh, I literally, like I was such a small town kid, never been on a plane before, and uh, you know here I am with a bag a bag of equipment and uh, another hockey bag full of uh, clothes, and landed in Tupelo, Mississippi, and it was uh, what a culture shock. And, but I just, I loved and embraced every second of it. It was such an incredible experience. 
Yeah, well, that's just yeah, especially like we're you're, you're heading down south there, and uh, um, now in terms of like, so you show up, and uh, I mean, in the Western Pro League was no joke back then. I mean, there was uh, there was like tough dudes on every team, and uh, it, it, we were talking. I've had guests on before, Chris Waltz and Mazer and them, and it it was sort of LNA. H ish ish kind of, but uh, maybe not so much of the sideshow. But I mean, in terms of toughness, oof. And I was just, uh, how was your, how was that camp? Pretty tough. So the camp, the camp for me was awesome. Uh, honestly, I forget exactly who I fought, but I had a really, really good camp. And I, I'll tell you this, so boy, did I fuck up a lot of drills. I mean, it was my first like pro camp experience right i'm coming from junior c where you know i messed up drills in junior c alone let alone at a pro level and i was one of like i was like rudy rudiger and, and like as soon as i mess up a drill like i just get right back to the line so let me do it again coach let me do it again and it just everyone would just shake their head but uh yeah it took a while before i kind of understood the flow and and <laughs> how to be functional with the drills but uh, yeah, it was a tough. It was a super, super tough league at the time, and uh, I, like I said, it was never a question of balls. It was just I hadn't come into my own as uh, with a style yet, and we'll get into that later. But it wasn't until my second year at Quebec where I really started digging in and breaking everything down and coming up with a style that I was really comfortable with. Yeah, well, it's like the growing pains, right? I mean, every fighter goes through it. I mean, all the guys I've talked to on here, it's like. You know, people just didn't, uh, you know, people weren't Bob Probert right off the go, right? I mean, uh, you know, every, uh, you know, and in your case being such a late starter, I mean, at that point, what's the old saying, kind of a puppy with big paws, right? You're kind of just grown into it and uh, kind of, because uh, this is yeah, got to Kopech, I believe, he said, he said it best. He said, you know, the more you do it, the, the better you get at it. The more uh, comfortable you are in the pocket, what's what, like, what's coming at you, how are you going to handle that? And then, um, reading what's coming at you once you, once you've latched on and then balance too. Like, uh, uh, like I've said to you in our conversations, like I, I struggled with balance to start with. And I think what was happening was I was trying to be too upright. So, uh, my, my legs were too close together and I would often spill too easily. And it wasn't until I, like I said, second year in Quebec where I spread my legs out a little bit, leaned forward and got more comfortable with my posture than my balance. Yeah. And it's, I could, I remember talking to a few people. I talked to my brother about this and he even said the first couple times, and we all go through it, but the first couple times it's, it's more like a, I don't want to say a blackout, but you're kind of just all freak spasm and whatever. But he said, after you, after you did it more, he noticed, yeah, things slow down. You start to think about what you're going to do. You know what I mean? Just kind of roll with punches and stuff like that. That's what he was saying, anyway. Yeah, the the entrance, like the the entrance is huge. Like if you can if you can enter um, in, in an offensive mode, grab and throw, or for example, uh, later on in my career, I started leading with the jab. Once I got into the boxing a little bit my left hand was low to square off with in a hockey fight and they were worried about my right. And then I'd throw that left, stun them with it, get them on their heels and then unload with the right and keep on going with it until the fight was over. So that was super, super effective with me. Um, but, uh, 
and we'll talk about this later, but Segroy in the hockey forces, when I threw that jab, uh, he had done enough research and he, he looked at me and said, I knew that was coming. He swatted it out of the way and said, I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah, they, um, well, yeah, there he goes. Yeah, so well, we'll get into that. But I, actually, I was just sort of looking at the Tupelo at that team. I noticed one of the guys on the team was, uh, was he there when you were there? It was, uh, Kevin Evans. Kevin Evans, he must have been... He only played 25 games, so he might have been there after you left. Yeah, and, uh, like, that season, like I had said, uh, it was pretty weird how it all happened. Um, I was picked up on a trade um, to Waco, um, and George DuPont left me unprotected in a trade because he just didn't think anyone would pick me because no one knew who I was. But then this coach from... uh, Kingston, Ontario, Kevin Abrams, he knew who I was and uh, traded for me. So um, I ended up going to uh, Waco, and uh, I love Kevin Abrams, and I love George Dupont, too, both of them as coach. And Waco folded in a dispersal draft, and Tupelo picked me back up, and then uh, I think it wasn't even a month later, and Kevin Abrams ended up getting a job with Amarillo, and traded back for me just before the trade deadline, so I finished the season in Amarillo that year. Well, how did you? Well, so we'll just go. How was uh, just kind of go through the different towns because I know we got a bunch of bunch of cats down south listening. What was your? Uh, what? How did you enjoy Waco? I mean, obviously they folded. That they couldn't have been getting too many people, I guess. Yeah, that 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 town just didn't embrace the team uh, the way some of the other ones did, but. Uh, it, what an interesting uh, concept. I mean, a lot of the barns that we played in were old rodeo barns. I mean, what a. What, I think actually at one point, Quebec, or uh, sorry, not Quebec, uh, Texas had more pro hockey teams than on uh, than Canada alone. Yeah. Like, yeah, when probably. You put all, yeah. With all the minor leagues, I think they, they, they had more professional hockey teams than all of Canada, which is crazy to think of that, right? Yeah, no, that's, no, yeah, probably, with the minors and everything, yeah. No, yeah. that's the thing, and there's always that kind of, there's always sort of been that saying, like, uh, you know, uh, hockey won't go down south or whatever, and it's like, dude, it's been down south for a long, long time. Um, yeah, well, and like, down there, it's like, obviously, they must have loved you. Here comes, I mean, yeah, they, they love the fighters. So yeah, in my career, everywhere I went, I was, uh, I was really lucky. The fans embraced me uh, as a person and as a player, and uh, I, for some reason, always ended up being a fan favorite. And I'm, I'm super grateful for that. Well, and like you said, so you end up you after bouncing around, suitcasing it up, you end up in Amarillo. Uh, there's some interesting cats on Amarillo with you. I mean, you got uh, uh, an old Western League, a Saskatchewan boy, uh, Josh Dobbins on that team, Corey Eisen's on that team. Uh, yeah, Corey Eisen, tough as nails. Dobbin, I never, I never played with him. He wasn't on the team when I was there. He went to another team shortly before I did. I, I know I did fight him. I just don't remember what team I was playing for when I did fight him. Uh, well, I know you fought him in the Quebec League a couple times. I know he went to Alexandria. He was with the okay, board. yeah. And uh, well, I'm just kind of looking at your fight card here, and I mean, it's certainly not, uh, you know anywhere near complete, but uh, one of the names on here is an interesting character, a minor league legend, 
Do you remember your fight with the meat grinder, Marty Melnichuk? Oh, absolutely. Like, man, talk about talk about an intimidating guy. Like, uh, he had – so a lot like uh, <clears throat> Screwy St. Louis had said, there was, uh, there was game notes that you'd get before every single game, and it would list all the other team's stats. And, I mean, as a rookie – tough guy especially coming from junior c not even having the pedigree resume resume of uh you know playing junior a or anything like that so here i am looking at guys that i gotta fight that i've had several years in pro and or junior a major junior and also even getting called up to the american league and that was intimidating man looking at those game sheets and you know seeing this guy's got 300 minutes and you know points on top of it or whatever else and then here's me no points you know 100 minutes you know 10 majors or something like that but i i never took a lot of minors and we'll get into that later but i it wasn't until uh i got into my later career that i realized taking those minors and being a little bit crazy uh adds to the the space you're going to get on the ice, which, you know, then you can start playing a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, Marty, Marty was an animal. He was, uh, he was probably the most intimidating player I played against to that, uh, to that point. He just had these crazy antics. He was always like shaking his head and blinking his eyes and, and, and got to play a lot too. And leading the league in majors and, and penalty minutes and stuff like that. He was, he was a scary man. And I think I fought him, once, maybe twice, and he he cleaned me up both times. Um, well, another guy had said you fought a few times, and of course he went on to be a LNAH regular like yourself was Bajerni. Oh yeah, Bajerni actually, uh, he's one of my best friends, and there was four of us that all kind of ended up uh, finding our way to each other: Jamie Linehouse, Brian Rasmussen, and Mike Bajerni. And in Quebec, we all played for different teams but we were uh sick as thieves off the ice and uh it was just uh one of those things that uh we were all kind of cut from the same cloth and uh and we got along and always hung out outside of hockey and if we had to fight each other then we had to fight each other it was what it was yeah well i'm gonna like there's a a few names in that league that i wanted to kind of just throw at you and like i said the i don't know if you fought there or not because the the fight card for the western pro league is uh is isn't isn't complete, but uh, I mean there was some tough duty. I mean you had Ryan Schmier, Zerba, Sean Legault, Chris Waltz, Brad Wingfeld. Um, did you take any of these guys on when you were down there? Yeah, I fought Legault, and uh, I think he beat me too. I mean I'd love to be able to tell you I I did better against some of these guys, but uh, yeah, Legault I I know I fought him once. I think he gave me a pretty good. Uh, Black guy for a while. Uh, Smear, I never fought. Uh, Winfield, I never fought until I got to Quebec. Uh, yeah, none of those other guys, I don't think I fought. Did you ever fight Mayotte? I did. I did fight him. I, I think it was... Because he was in Central Texas. Yeah, I, I think I did fight him then. Because um, I don't... Yeah. I, I And I'm not sure how that went, but I'm pretty sure I did fight him, yeah. All right. Well, I know when we were talking before, and you had mentioned I should ask you about the Kevin Abrams, the coughing the puck up story. Oh, man, that's too good. Uh, I don't know if you know Kevin Abrams or not, but he's a funny guy. He looks like Crusty the Clown, kind of 
shorting <laughs> around. And he was just a super, super funny coach. And uh, he actually he let me play a bunch, and I appreciate that so much. But uh, we were in New Mexico, and I don't know if we were up or they were up, but it was a significant lead one way or another, so he was giving me some ice time. So we're in our end. Uh, there's a scrum on my wing let's say, with the defenseman, the centerman, and I pick up the puck and I try and go around our net and kind of bobby or the puck all the way down to the other end, but I didn't even get anywhere close to that and I coughed it up right in front of the net and then that centerman curled off the scrum, grabbed the puck and scored a goal. And it was like, probably one of my most embarrassing moments in Meyer pro ever. <laughs> and I remember, I remember skating to the bench and he just, <laughs> he just, he stood there with his finger waving back and forth. He said, Dino, 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 don't touch the puck. <laughs> don't touch the puck. <laughs> I said, okay, Roger that. There you go. Let, oh, you go. It's a hockey lesson, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so, well, before we, uh, yeah, I was going to, so, so you, you, we, uh, we wrap up down south. Um, the next year, 2000, 2001, you end up in the United Hockey League in Muskegon. How did that all come about? Yeah, so, okay, so to start that year, I had a, uh, I had a contract in Bakersfield, went down there. Oh, yes, uh, right, I forgot about this. I thought that was the next year, but okay, yes. Sorry to interrupt. Yes, and, Bakersfield, because there's a story there yeah, that I want to ask I, you about. Yeah, I, I I showed up in shape. I had a pretty good camp. I, I uh, injured my hip flexors, but I fought Sasha Lakovic, who was a, a maniac. We fell down after we fought, and he licked my face, which is crazy. But I ended up playing with him in uh, St. Jean later on. But, uh, yeah, I had a good camp. But what happened was... Oh, hold, hold uh, on, hold on. You just can't just glaze over that. The dude licked my face and just keep talking. Nah, we got to go about <laughs> Lakovic here for a second. Was he... So he was in... He was trying out with Bakersfield as well, right? No, he was. I think he was playing for San Diego. I could be wrong. But oh, okay. So it's a preseason game where this happened. Obviously, Pre- yeah, preseason game. So we fought, and then uh, fell was down he was he doing the whole was he doing the barking and all that shit, warm ups and stuff? <laughs> no, he wasn't. But he landed on top of me on the fight and was licking my face, going <laughs> like a complete maniac. And I'd never experienced that before. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, that, like who does that, right? Well, I was going to say everyone listened, and, and you New Age fans think that Marchant. You think this was something new? Ah, shit! Lakovic was doing this a decade ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, okay, like on that note, like when players start doing crazy things like that, you end up with a, a different uh, a different level of notoriety, and the, those stories start circling around and. Uh, you know, you end up with, uh, you add to the intimidation when you start doing that crazy stuff, like, like Terrio and like Cote in the, uh, Quebec League. Like those guys weren't afraid to, uh, take a two and ten multiple times a, a game or, or whenever they could just to do something completely crazy, cross check in the face, whatever it was. And that stuff gets around and then no one wants to even come close to you because they don't know what you're going to do, right? No, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, like you said, the stories is Lakovic. I mean, they're all like they're you know got. He, I, a friend of mine was uh, saying that the one time 
he wanted to fight, the guy was serving a minor penalty, and Lakovic wanted to fight the guy. So much like, well, this is probably where they got in Goon, the movie, when Glatt skates over to the box, and the coach tells him to stand there or whatever. I'm sure they got this story from Lakovic, from hearing the Lakovic story. But Sasha did that, but apparently got to the penalty box and waited for this guy to get out, but he dropped down on all fours and started barking, waiting for the guy to get out. Yeah. My friend said it was like the damnedest thing he'd ever seen. Yeah. And then they fought, of course, when the guy got out, but... Oh, like you said. The yeah, story. well, here, here, here's another interesting story, skipping forward a little, a little bit. Uh, so in the Quebec League, my first year there when Sasha was with me, um, I believe there was an envelope involved uh, with some cash, but and that happened frequently. They'd say, you know, you go do this or you go do this, and we'll give you this envelope. And one, one uh, it was, I think it was our very first home game uh, Sasha got an envelope to start shadow boxing when we were both uh, both teams were at the line for the uh, national anthem and then he, as soon as the singer started singing it, he skated off to center ice and was shadow boxing uh, as they were singing the national anthem, which is like you know, that that beats anything. Like, have you heard anything even close to that before? As the national anthem is being sung, he's shadow boxing in center ice. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. I haven't heard that one before. That's pretty funny. Um, well, here, before we go back to Muskegon or to Bakersfield and stuff, just on while, while we're on the topic of Sat, what was Sasha like off the ice? I mean, everybody hears these stories and, oh, he was crazy and he had that persona and stuff. But what was he like privately? Um, well, I'll say one thing. That guy was... Uh... He was gifted with incredible genetics. He was uh, yep. he was thin skinned and ripped and jacked with like the perfect physique. He had you know super strong legs and uh, like I said, completely ripped and was just super strong and just super super athletic. And uh, uh, he knew the game. He knew he knew that the intimidation factor as an enforcer was uh, something that was super, super important, and he was able to um, really dig into that, and, and he was incredible at it. Yes, he was. I mean, I, I, didn't, see, I didn't see too much of the crazy off-ice Sasha stories because when he was uh, with us in Saint-Jean, he was pretty level. I mean, he had his girlfriend with him, he had his daughter with him at the time, and so he was pretty level. But on the ice, he was a maniac, it just... I don't think I have too many stories other than that shadow boxing story where, you know, he was doing anything really, really crazy. No, a friend of mine played roller hockey with him in the summer, so they were just hanging out at the hotel. And, yeah, you hear all the stories about this guy and stuff when he had played against him in the winter and stuff. But, yeah, I just said, oh, a guy hung up by the pool and just, just smoked his weed and worked out. That's kind of what Sasha did, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and that's one thing he just he'd love to do. He just like to, you know, get baked. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and like I said, he's super, super good shape, and like that, he, he was uh, he was really into that, and he really dug deep into the whole physical conditioning thing. Absolutely. Okay, uh, so we're in Muskegon. We how'd you end up in Muskegon? Okay, so um, that whole Bakersfield story, they ended up bringing a guy in who was from Toronto, who was a friend of the player assistant coach uh, Corey. Bannock or Banker or something like that. Uh, so 
this guy was like six five, and he was a professional bodybuilder. He had his pro uh, bodybuilding card, and he would uh, he would get dressed in, in his half gear and then go sit at the glass uh, before the games. And the other team would obviously have a good look at him and, and be completely petrified. Um, so he had me beat huge on that, but he wasn't able to. Uh, play the role the same way that I was at the time. And I don't know what it was, whether I had, you know, uh, injured hip flexors or what, but they ended up letting me go. I was the last one to be let go in that camp. And I was kind of scrambling for a spot, ended up going to Muskegon uh, on a trial contract. So I was there for, uh, I think I was there for two weeks and did well and got along with everyone really well. And then uh, Tupelo ended up, or sorry, uh, Bakersfield called me back and said, we want you to come back. This other guy is not going to work out. And I went and talked to Rich Crom, who was the coach of uh, Muskegon at the time. I said, Bakersfield just called me back. Do you want me to go, or do you guys want to keep me? He goes, tell him, tell him that we're going to keep you. So, And I was super happy with that decision because they were a really, really good uh, organization. Yeah, I was going to say, how, like, so you spent the two years in Muskegon. Um, yeah, how did you enjoy Muskegon? I loved it. And, like, if you talk about, like, good guys, like a good group of guys, like, that was one of the best I'd ever experienced. Uh, uh, the first year I was there, I, I mean, I don't remember exactly how well we did, but the second year I was there um, under Danton Cole, we were first place team in the league. And, uh, I mean, for me personally, as a, as my role with my success, I mean, the fans like me there, but uh, I, I still wasn't succeeding anywhere even close to how how I did once I got to Quebec. Like, I still had balance issues. I was a healthy scratch a lot because, uh, you know, I just, I wasn't, when I got on the ice to uh, to fight, I would either fight right away off the, off the line or I would try and play the game instead of if they were, if they were putting me out there, they want me to be aggressive. They want me to throw hits, get in people's faces and, uh, create a momentum shift, which it took me a couple of years of playing pro and it wasn't until Quebec that I ended up realizing that I got to be a little bit different. Like I can't go on the ice and, you know, be a good guy and try and play the game. If they're looking for a goal to be scored, it's not going to be me that they want to score it. It's going to be someone else. So if they're putting me on the ice, they need me to throw big hits, get in people's faces, take the odd two, change the game, change it up a little bit, intimidate other players, create room for our guys. And uh, I just, I didn't get that at that time. So I wasn't who I needed to be as a tough guy. So I, like I said, I got, I was healthy scratched a lot and uh, I just, I wasn't succeeding as well as I, as I should have been. So our team was succeeding a lot, but uh, I was kind of taking a backseat to it all. Well, and you, like, uh, well, and I mean, in that league, there's certain, there, you know, obviously in the old United league, there was certainly, uh, you know, some, uh, some tough cats for sure. And, uh, a few of the names I'll throw at you that you took on. I mean, well, speaking of legendary enforcers, and I see you fought him a couple times, uh, was Kerry Toporowski. Yeah, Toporowski. So, um, yeah, he played for Quad City. I think I fought him 
maybe it was three or four. I I know I fought him a lot that year, and I had uh, I heard obviously about you know his uh, his legendary status. Like he was a complete maniac in junior. When I had fought him, and when he was in Quad City, he had toned down quite a bit. But uh, he's an interesting story. I never actually got to talk to him, but uh, a super smart guy, as far as I know, is kind of. I think he's like a financial advisor or something like that, which is pretty cool. Yes, like, he is. You know, not not your typical hockey enforcer kind of uh, person off the ice, but uh, yeah. And those fights, they were they were average. I never got the better of him too many times, and I don't think he got the better of me too many times. But uh, he was a gamer, that's for sure. Yeah. While another guy, of course, uh, uh, that you would have numerous run-ins with down the line was uh, Mike Varhog. Varhog. Oh, Varhog, yeah. You know what? I My hat goes off to him, man. Uh, my style just didn't work well with him. He was too tall, and by the time we had started fighting, I think – he played for Abilene when I played for Waco, and I had a good one against him, my first one. But as the years went on, uh, it, it was like each time I fought him, it got harder and harder. He was able to string me out and, uh, you know, hit me, like just pick me apart with, with punches. And then I'd see, I'd see guys that were far smaller and not as strong as me uh, take him on and do really well because they were able to get in close. Like, I think Morassi fought him and did really, really well. Like it just in close and picking him apart. Uh, and then uh, Hudson, uh, I think his name was Rob Hudson in Muskegon. He was a guy, a local guy, but uh, he he was a guy that we called up every once in a while. And uh, I seen him fight Varhog and like just made Varhog look stupid at the time. And he's a small guy. Hmm. Yeah, it's um Yeah, I just I just I just I, I struggled with him because he was able to string me out with such big reach and then just kinda of pick me apart where uh thinking back I would have done better if I would have got in tight and uh and fought the in tight fight. Well it's a, it, it and it's funny even in hockey, but I mean they say it in boxing or in UFC or whatever, but styles make fights, right? And it's just sometimes the uh yeah, just it doesn't work. It does. It might have success against one guy, and it just doesn't work against someone else. And you know, and you know. and then from one night to another. Yeah, I absolutely. Mean, uh, if you look at uh, you know down the road, we'll talk about this. Like the boss say, like the first time we fought, uh, he connected with me right on the button and uh, dropped me in Terrell. And then two weeks later, I had probably one of my most one-sided victories ever against him in Verdun. I mean, that's two weeks apart, and that's the same guy, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, and then especially in hockey, right? I mean, it's so much like balance. I mean, oh shit, you're on ice on blades, right? So I mean balance and all that and then you know catch it end of a shift or i mean there's so many variables that i think a lot of times um fans don't take into consideration right or they don't think about they just see the two guys fighting there's a lot more that goes into it than that but and you're so right and that's something that's worth kind of breaking down i mean from uh anything like as simple as like did you sleep that day or you know what you ate or where your mental uh, where you are mentally, like, I know that was a huge thing for me. Like, if I was, if I was ready mentally, there wasn't too many guys that could beat me. But if I, you know, let's say maybe didn't want to do it that night, it was a different story, and you know, I was easy to beat. 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's ha- the mental, absolutely. But uh, yeah. well, just kind of going through. Well, here's a name. Here's another guy, um, and uh, my, definitely uh, my, especially out in the West Coast League in San Diego. Um, but he ended up there. It was Chad Wagner. I see you fought him. A yeah, few times. Wagner. I uh, I never got to speak with him all that much, but I did fight him. Jeez, uh, who was he playing for? Uh, Asheville. That's right. Yeah, he uh, man. He was he was a guy who uh, nothing but respect for him. He had played uh, many years all over the place. I think he played in the American League a little bit. Uh, well, he played in the IHL in Las Vegas for the Thunder for sure. Um, okay, yeah, and he, you know what, he was he was one of those tough guys that uh, as a as a rookie, uh, as a young guy, I looked up to as far as he was functional on the ice. I mean, I watched him practice, watched him on the ice. He got he got to play, and he was he was effective at his uh, at his role, and a good guy. Yeah, he's a big dude too. Um, well, here's a name. Um, I know I've seen the it, it, not knocking it, it just wasn't much of a fight. But it was it must have been a, a thrill because I know you were a hockey fight fan to square off with Darren Kimball. That had to be a little surreal because I'm sure you probably saw him on a fight tape or two. Yeah, oh yeah. I don't know if I uh, did. I square off against him because I thought it was like a kind of a scrum in the corner. Yeah, well, you know what I mean though. But just to be in something, uh, just I was just using it as a uh, phrase, but it was just uh, yeah, yeah but, but just to kind of get involved with Darren Kimball, you know. Yeah, he was, and uh, like Screwy had said in uh, that podcast, like, he was a good player, man. He played all the time when we played against, like, uh, I think it was Missouri. Uh, the River Otters. River. Yeah. yeah, and uh, he was a good player and huge and, like, knew how to use the body well. And I'm not even sure how we ended up fighting, but and I, I don't even know how that turned out, but, I mean, obviously, the name Darren Kimball carries a lot of weight, and, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> however that ended up, I was happy I ended up below anything on my face. Yeah, well, I want to throw this name, but can I, I'll let you talk about it, but I, I heard a couple stories from him, but he, he went on to the Quebec League, too, I noticed you fought him in Kalamazoo a couple times, was uh, Benoit Boussoulet. Yeah, actually, okay, so Benoit Boussoulet, uh I ended up uh, fighting him quite a bit uh, when we were in uh, Quebec, but he was, I think, he was the very first guy to uh, buckle me in pro hockey, and that, I, I'm pretty sure it was actually in Muskegon when he did it, and then I had a really, really good uh, um, second fight with him, like uh, a redemption fight, but then, uh, yeah, we... Uh, we played against each other in uh, in Quebec, and he's a super super nice guy. But uh, yeah, he he buckled me pretty good, and that was a big eye opener for me. Like right in my my home bar and buckled me. That was that was embarrassing. Now, is in terms of when something like that happens, um, are you gun shy? Were you gun shy getting back into it, or did you want to like get right back on the horse, or uh, like mentally, how did that affect you? Um, I was one hundred percent couldn't wait to have redemption. Like yep. couldn't because like, uh, in, in a situation like that, let's say someone uh, gets the better of you and, and you let that fear sink in, that's not going away. You can't let that happen. You got to be a survivor. You have to, 
you have to go above and beyond and you got to reach for anything that's going to get you to where you need to be to, to make that change next time you do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, before we leave, well, here's a guy obviously with the Enforcer pay-per-view and everything else. You had had history with Segroy because you fought him twice in the United League as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, how did, uh, he's a big he's a big dude too. And uh, what were your impressions fighting him? Yeah, so um, he did we fight twice before the hockey enforcers? I thought it was only once, but I could be wrong. Well, they got you listed on drop your gloves as fighting twice. Okay, well, I'm pretty sure once in Rockford I, and once I in Muskegon. Him, and I remember, I remember the first time at least he uh, he pretty put a pretty good working on me. So he was one of those guys for sure. Come hockey enforcers that I was worried about. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, Working on getting him on the show. It's going to be a. We're going to have the tail. We're going to have the. We're going to have. It'll be interesting because we'll we'll have the uh, the story from both sides. I'm hoping. Yeah, anyway. just, just so you know, like I I've got a lot of respect for him um, as a person because uh, he's a, a boxing coach and an MMA coach, and I know he also coaches uh, um, kids in his garage, like just doing little stick handling stuff and. Uh, that's something that I'm merging into myself right now. And he's doing a really, really good job at, um, you know, being a mentor to young kids and using his mindset and, and just positive beliefs and motivation to, uh, to get these guys going. And he's doing a really good job of that. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, well, we're definitely, I'm looking forward to having him on and uh, I'm sure he's got some stories because that dude went everywhere. But a couple names I want to uh, talk to you about in Muskegon before we head to the Quebec League um, were teammates, and I mean, and, and a legendary tough guy, uh, Bruce Ramsey. Oh, remember, like, man, I remember, I forget the guy's name, but I remember, so Bruce at the time, he was our, um, he was our player assistant, and uh, I mean, he was on his way out. He had done it for many years, played in the IHL and American League and blah, 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 all over the place, and fought all the heavyweights. And, like, Rammer was only, like, 170, 175 pounds. He wasn't, like, you know, your big, typical, you know, 250 or 230 heavyweight that's, you know, six foot four. But his fighting, like, he, he was amazing at punching straight down the pipe and he had these super super long arms and massive massive hands and uh like he was just impeccable at that job like he'd just stand in there and his feet were almost like twinkle toes he could just be like hopping back like just just twinkle toes and just hammering guys with that straight right right down the pipe now, did he, uh, did like, did you, um, I'm assuming you obviously, did you seek advice from him or did he offer it or did you kind of just do your own thing or uh, did you guys work a lot he, on that? We, you know what, we did a little bit of work together here and there, but um, it was one of those things where when you're in the States, like uh, the, the fighting was secondary, if not even further down the road than that, right? So when I got to Quebec, that's when every team, all the tough guys would group together, and we just talk about it all the time and really break down all the different um, aspects of it. So I did talk to Rammer a lot about uh, 
fighting, but it was nothing like breaking it down um, to the full extent that we did in the Quebec League because of how important it was there. But, uh, yeah, he, he was someone that I looked up to both as a player and a tough guy and as a person off the edge. Yeah, well, like you said, legendary name in the in the game, that's for sure. And uh, well, What's he and, doing now, do you know? Uh, oh, he's a coach in... He just got hired. Oh, God. Wichita? Uh, I've never seen something like that. Yeah, he just got hired like three weeks ago. I'm trying to think where it is. It's Wichita, I think. Yeah, but he's coaching for sure. He is coaching. Yeah. Right on, good for Yep. Well, uh, well, another name that was there just before we leave, uh, were you there when Steve McIntyre was there? I was. Actually, or no, actually, so I, ha- I had just left. And he came in. Uh, he came in to finish the season there. But uh, so McIntyre, I got some pretty good stories of him. He uh, he showed up in Saint Jean when I had uh, I had started there, and he was a roommate of mine. I don't know if you want me to dig into the stories now or after. But, no, no, have at her, man. Absolutely. Yeah. So here we are in uh, Saint Jean. He arrives, and uh, he didn't have a pot to piss in, and was like perfectly. Perfectly happy with surviving off minute rice and tuna until uh, until paychecks, and then he got his first paycheck and he wanted to buy uh, a cowboy hat and uh, cowboy boots. And I knew of a place in Montreal that uh, that he could get that. So I had an Aerostar van at the time. Um, so we, I drove him there, and I was a bit hungover, so I was sleeping in the back seat of the van as he went in and bought everything. And then he comes out, whatever, a half hour, 45 minutes later, jumps in, throws his boots and, and uh, hat in the back seat and gives the old cowboy woo-hoo and then puts her in gear and fires, puts it in reverse, fires into the, uh, into the oncoming traffic on a highway, and then t- we were T-boned, and I ended up, the, the van flipped over on its side, and I ended up waking up in a freaking pool of glass. Yeah, wasn't <laughs> expecting that to happen. He's like he didn't kill you guys for crazy. Yeah, yeah, we, we we all ended up okay, but that was pretty funny. Yeah, and then another story about him. I think this was about a week later. Like for those who don't know McIntyre, he's just a he's a big kid, nice as pie. Uh, and there wasn't too many times in my career I ever felt small, but standing next to him, I did. And uh, there was one night, Pierre Jean Jean, our captain, uh, he had a business meeting or something in Saint Jean, so. Uh, need to spend the night at uh, our, our uh, apartment. And he came over. We were having a beer together. I don't know. It was 1 o'clock in the morning or something. He's like, where's that McIntyre? And uh, he's like, he's sleeping. You better not wake him up. He's, he's been sleeping for a bit. And he's like, I'm going to go wake him up. I'm going to go wake him up. So I can hear him in the bedroom going, Kitsy, Kitsy, Goo. Kitsy, Kitsy, Goo. And all of a sudden, I hear this huge commotion. And McIntyre threw him like a rag doll through the bedroom door. The bedroom door swung open the opposite way, like it opened inside of the bedroom. It busted open the other way into the hallway and there's John Joe laying in a little like in a little ball. What what the fuck just happened? <laughs> well there you go. And, and McIntyre rolled out of the hallway and just kinda of looked at him and grunted and went back to bed. Don't wake Steve McIntyre up. They're lesson learned kids. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, well, here we go. Let's, we'll get into the, 
here we are. We're into the Quebec League now. So 2002-2003, you go to St. Saint John. How did, well, how did this whole ordeal happen? How did you end up in Quebec? Had you heard about the league and all that sort of thing? How did you end up there? Okay, so this is this is where th- there's so much to say here. That uh, the LNAH, it was like it was the wild, wild west of, of pro hockey. It was also considered, you know, the misfit of pro hockey, but it was exciting beyond belief. And uh, uh, I ended up so after Muskegon went home, and I was kind of contemplating whether I was going to play play again or not, and. Uh, I was uh, working on the farm, and then I got uh, I kept getting calls from Saint Jean. Tony uh, Trochello was his name, and he was sending me fight uh, fight tapes just so I can kind of get an idea what the league was like. And they were offering me pretty good money, like quite a bit more than what I was making when I was playing in the states. So I watched all those fights, and I thought about it for a bit, and then I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to keep doing it. I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna fight the toughest guy on every team every single night. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna do it, I'm not gonna do it half assed. So I ended up taking the uh taking the contract, moving to uh Montreal and uh yeah, the rest is history. That 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 league there's like you know, we'll we'll obviously we'll get into more of it, but there's just there's almost no words to describe it. It's hard to put everything into words. Like it's, I guess the best way I could say it is it's like a modern man living as a Viking or a gladiator. Like it's just, it's a storm all the time. Like from, you know, the nightlife, the music, the, the way the games, the music in the background, like the, the way everything was it was just it, it was so much to soak in and it was so much different from you know playing in the states down south like it was just th- there was a huge show aspect to it and it was so much fun and the, the caliber was good and it wasn't you know i'm not saying all bad things about it because there was like i said it was probably my best experience ever of you know living in a different place and experiencing lifestyle and learn french and uh you know just being a part of that uh environment mm-hmm. well like you said it's definitely the wild west and uh this team i mean like you said every team was four and five and six guys deep and uh and i'm just i'm looking at the roster that you guys had i mean aaron bow uh lakovic mcintyre um well uh, and a name i i just yeah i'm just i'm, I'm reading the roster now and it surprised me because i he was there for four games, but Troy Crowder? I didn't know he played there. Yeah, man. <laughs> there was a lot of guys like that that they just bring in for uh, a game or whatever, and it, it's one of those situations that I always told myself I never wanted to do because I've seen, I seen guys like Troy Crowder and uh, – other guys similar to that come in for a game and they weren't in shape and they're, you know, they're expected to do the job against heavyweights, heavyweights that were um, seasoned, you know, like guys like Joel Terrio, guys like Pat Cote, all these guys, like they're all seasoned. They're, they're into it. And then these guys who had NHL experience and obviously were super, super high caliber as far as fighting, they've been out of it for years and they're expected to come back and just jump into it and do well. 
And yeah, uh, I don't know how many games Troy played, but uh, yeah, he didn't do good. Well, it's yeah, four games. I don't think he fought and stuff. I'm just, I get, I don't know. Like, did he just come in for a payday and think this is just going to be beer league? And like, did he, did he ever say anything to like, what the fuck am I doing here? Did he say anything to you? No, no, I didn't hear anything about from. But I, I can guarantee he was thinking that. Oh, I can well, guarantee he was thinking that. It was one of those things where you know. They were calling that league. They were calling everyone. Like, yep. Honestly, there was, there was a revolving door. There was they were bringing in tough guys every single week, and you know they they put them to the test for a couple of weeks. If they did shit, away they went. If they did good and they wanted to do it, then okay, you stuck around. But uh, um, on that note, the first time I ever played the Laval Chiefs, uh, you know I'd obviously heard tons about them. Man, I bet you there was. 10 legit heavyweights like when you're playing in the states or any other team you know you kind of you do your enforcer role along the the red line kind of scoping out who who might be the guy well that game the first game i played against the Laval chiefs i mean there was um chad richardson there was rabbi there was cote there was freaking uh bedard there was Bajerni, there was you know it was non it was endless it was Razanzov, like, Razanzov, kopech yeah yeah all of like and, and these these aren't just like these aren't number twos these aren't number threes like these are legit number ones who have had like successful high-end careers in other places as enforcers. Like, these are all number one contained contenders. Yeah. Craig Martin. There you go. There's another Craig guy. Martin, yeah. Guy played the NHL. Yeah. Like, well, so your first year, I'm looking, I'm just out of kind of quick adding. It was like you had 38 fights in your first year at St. John. Oh, actually, I was going to ask you, uh, well, you had, like, here's a character you, you have, I mean, yeah, like you said with the names, I, I, I was reading them before, but Bo Lakovic, uh, Kevin Holiday was there briefly. Danik Lassard, Pissiak, John Hewitt. There's a name. There. You, you, uh, do you have any John Hewitt stories? Yeah, I got so. We need a whole another podcast to tell John Hewitt stories. Well, I was gonna. I want to ask you about this, and then we'll get into some of your fights. But one of the guys you played with, um, I've seen his name before, and I've seen some of his fights. Was uh, um, Ronnie? Was it Valentine? Valenti, yeah. Valenti. So, was he like a big bodybuilder dude, if I remember right? Yeah, and uh, <laughs> this goes back to like that whole Quebec League thing. I mean, okay, he was, a, he, I think he was, uh, he had his pro card as a bodybuilder, so he was jacked all the time. Yep. And like, you know, not the worst hockey player ever. He could skate, I mean, and uh, and he could fight. He was, a, you know, a little bit of a seat belt, uh, but uh yeah, he was one of those guys that were uh, like in that environment. He was he was a draw, right? Because yep. he, he was jacked and he was you know a bodybuilder. So they'd bring guys like that in, and uh, it would bring in fans because of who he was off the ice, kind of thing. Yeah, I just saw Danica, sorry, very 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 similar. He was he was the same kind of thing. Like uh, he was a popular guy in the environment, and. Uh, and he wasn't afraid of anyone. He'd fight anyone. He was jacked and lean and, uh, you know, wasn't the best hockey player, but he would do the job. Oh, he was great to watch fight. I mean, that dude was just toe-to-toe. And, yeah, he uh, – I know he got uh, – a couple of years – I know he got shot there a few years ago. I know uh, 
He's he may, he's all right now, but yeah, I was a little, I remember reading that. It was a little scary, but uh, but he was in that league forever, forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking at your fight card your first year, and the first name it was in a preseason game that sticks out, and I mean, and everybody has stories, and of course, I have to ask Link Gates. Oh, what was it like <laughs> to fight the missing Link? That's a, that's an amazing question because honestly, uh, as a, you know, as a minor league tough guy, you, everyone everyone has heard of stories of uh, Link Gates. I mean, he couldn't. Uh, he, everyone knew how scary of a man he was, and like to think back to you know how good of a hockey player he was before his accident and everything, and then uh, to have the notoriety that he did in those leagues, like he he was petrifying to have to go up against. But in saying that, uh, he wasn't the kind of guy like Pat Cote, for example. Pat Cote was by far the most, the scariest guy that I had ever played against because he was lean and big and he could skate like the wind and he was just on the ice to crush people and hurt people. Like that was his main objective where Link was so big and kind of fat at the time that he, uh, he, he was just there to square off. But the thing about Link was if uh, if you let him start dragging you backwards, you were in trouble because then he'd, just, he'd stick that ass of his out and start dragging you backwards, and then he'd get you off balance and then just th- start throwing those devastating uppercuts. And uh, I think the first time I did fight him, he did that to me, and then from then on I just made sure whenever I did fight him I tried to push him back as much as possible which helped me big time. But uh, I think I had some good ones against him, but uh, he never really was able to really put a true beating on me, which was good because he's, he's one hell of a tough guy. Oh, yeah. I remember my, my friend was talking to Cote about it, and Cote was saying the same thing. He was like, he's even Patrick Cote even said, he goes, he goes, I've never seen anything like Link Gates. And this is like after he fought in the NHL and everything. He goes, I hit that guy as hard as I could hit a human. And I don't even think he blinked his eyes. He just sort of just took it and just, all right, and just grunted and kept going. But Kote couldn't believe it. He was just like, holy shit, like, this guy's a machine. Man, that that is such a true statement. And, like, you talk about, like, you know, phenoms of, uh, you know, the human existence. Like, Link's one of them. He really is. Like, like his face is, like, it's just, like, it's, it's massive, and it's, like, leather skin, and he's just, like, He's just as tough as tough can be. Like, it, it, it's just like you can hit him as hard as you want. I don't know if it's going to hurt him. Like, I man, I think that guy's been hit in the face with two-by-fours. Like, he's someone you should try and get on the podcast because he'd have stories for days. Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely he would. Um, well, speaking of On the- that, sorry, yeah, on that, so not too long ago, two years ago, three years ago, in Cold Lake, I live in Cold Lake now, and uh, me and a buddy of mine, Brandon, we uh, went to go drop his boat in the water in Cold Lake, and there was Link standing at the end of the uh, the boat launch one day, and I was I hadn't seen him or heard of him in years, and I was like, Link Gates, I can't even believe you're still alive, and we had a little bullshit, but yeah, it was funny running into him. I think he's he was working for some pipeline company around the area, but uh, yeah, need to see him. Well, yeah, he's in Edmonton now. He lives in Edmonton now. But, uh, uh, 
Well, that's that's a whole other story we'll talk about later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you're still getting in trouble. But uh, another name I wanted to bring up, and I mean, it, as, when you talk about the Quebec League, and I mean, this guy, I don't know how many fights he probably ended up having, 800 million fights, but was Jacques Dubé. I know you had a few run-ins with Jacques. Oh, and you know what? Like, I I got nothing but uh, respect for that guy because I fought him six times in the boxing ring. We're three and three, um, and I fought him several times on the ice. And he couldn't skate. He couldn't play the game. He was, uh, you know, kind of a local celebrity kind of dude, but he would fight everybody. And... Um, like I was telling you, in my earlier career, I struggled with balance. Well, this guy couldn't even skate, and he was still able to, you know, hold his own with balance. Like, uh, and him and Marasty had some beauties as well. Oh, yeah. Um, he, was able, he was able to do it at a high level with guys that could skate. Um, and I got nothing but respect for him. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, like, wasn't he like a bouncer or something? And then they were just like, hey, we need someone to fight. You want to come fight? Like, I heard that's what it was. Like, he, he, he never even played hockey, I don't think. He was just like some tough bouncer local guy that they just put put skates on in a jersey. Yeah, and so, okay, and that's the truth. That's, that's what I heard as well. And that's the one thing about the Quebec League that uh, it doesn't get the respect from a lot of, like, true hockey enthusiasts because you got guys like that, right? But... If you can, you know, the league, the way it was, all the enforcers would go out there and do their job, and there might be five fights to start the game, but then once the penalty box is full, boom, light switch goes on, and then it'd be like all skill playing for the next 10 minutes until something would happen one way or another. Let's say someone took a run at one of our guys or likewise or the, on the other side, and then all of a sudden they'd throw a tough guy out there, and then things would kind of heat up again. There'd be a couple more fights. Uh, Penalty boxes would fill. And then they'd go out and play hockey again. So it was was part of the whole, um, the way that, the way that league kind of ran, like they had these, these guys that were, you know, notorious for one thing or another, but then the hockey was still really, really good. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, right? It doesn't get the respect. And I mean, you know, it's people are never going to look past the fighting or whatever. But yeah, no, when it came down to time to play, oh, there was lots of talent in that league, and especially later yeah. on, you know, like we were talking oh five, oh six, oh seven, oh eight, blah blah blah, when the money really started flying, there was some real good dudes in that league. I mean, you had Eric Fischo yeah. and Net for God's sake. Uh, he, he wasn't that far removed from the NHL contract, you know. Like there was good players in that league for sure. Oh yeah, big time, and and a big draw for them. Uh, like a lot of the Quebec guys, especially those who didn't speak that good English, for them to go to the East Coast League or you know Western Professional League or whatever, and then go into an environment where you know the language barrier was an issue, that wasn't fun for a lot of those guys. And uh, being able to play at home and still carry on whatever career they had and then make a couple, you know, let's say, you know, certain guys would make a thousand dollars a week. Certain guys would make 500 bucks a week. Certain guys would make two grand a week. Um, to have a normal career, be at home with their families every night and then play two games and practice once on the, you know, that was perfect for them. 
No, absolutely. Well, and that was the one thing that, you know, us, us fight nerds, we always, they always like to throw around. And of course, the urban legends of the Quebec League, you know, it was Hell's Angels money, it was Bob money, it was blah, 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 all that stuff. But, um, and I know the money was big and cash and, you know, I'm not going to ask you, I mean, we're not going to get into your tax returns or anything, but what was the, you know, we don't have to say names or anything, but what was the biggest dollar figure you heard that an enforcer was making in that league? Um, weekly? Yeah. I think probably, you know, again, this is tough for me to say, uh, well, I can tell I can tell you what I heard. There was a cat playing in Laval that he made a hundred thousand dollars that year. Yeah, and, and if it were a guy like Cote, I uh, I I wouldn't doubt that one tiny bit because of what he brought to the the table. But uh, you know, even yeah, yeah, I, I can see that one hundred percent. Yeah, well, I think Brashear, I think Brashear was getting three hundred from Quebec. I think that's what I yeah, heard. and I believe. I believe that 100%. I mean, like, Brashear played all the time, and, uh, I mean, obviously he had a certain skill level and brought well, yeah. in a certain amount of people, uh, sold uh, sold tickets, put uh, seats in the in the stand. So he was worth that much of the time. Well, I was going to say, speaking of that, so playing in Quebec, that had to be a big deal when you guys played in the call and say that had to be pretty cool. Yeah, super cool, man. Like, that whole, that whole, uh, you know, I really can't say enough about my experience there. Like the the province of Quebec um, is a beautiful, beautiful province. Like the the, the history in the little towns and uh, you know the rinks and just like their their hockey uh, roots and uh, the the whole thing about it all was just such a great experience. Like. You know, compared to playing in the, in the states and in Texas, and it's all kind of surface and and new stuff to them. We're playing in old rodeo grounds. Like in Quebec, like these rinks have been around forever, and like the roots of hockey in Quebec are so deep. And if you can get past the whole separatism of you know Quebec not wanting to be a part of the rest of Canada, it was a really really beautiful place to be and to see and to be a part of. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, and like I said, well, and then we'll go on the other side. Oh, let's the the French are crazy, man. You know those Quebec folks are nuts. I like the LNH would not work in any other province but Quebec. That's what I always say. Like those people are crazy. But, I gotta agree with you hundred percent. They just they they they're nuts. Like oh yeah, I don't know if it would work anywhere else. I don't think so. But uh, you know, and that was. And, I always laugh. I always say that on Twitter, like nowadays, and these new age hockey fans get outraged over something that happened in the NHL. I just, I just sit here and chuckle to myself because I mean, you know, having watched and grew up in the minor league stuff and watched junior and the LNAH, it's like, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, that was uh, they would they would have uh, nightmares if they ever saw LNAH game tapes. But uh, Darren, did you ever get to go and uh, see any games when you were? I know I it was one of my big regrets. My friend was coaching Laval and he kept at the time I was laid off and I kept oh next year, next year, next year and of course the, things change in life and everything. I mean I got all the game tapes. I mean I've seen games and stuff, but you know I never got to experience live and it's one of my biggest regrets. Yeah, you would you you appreciating uh, like as much stuff as you do with the whole uh enforcement and stuff, you would have loved it. Just to, just to see it all first hand 
Oh yeah, and I like I said, I would talk to him, and he would just tell he tell stories for hours, and it was, you know, you'd get the Swanson stories and Cote and all them, and it was just, and I, you know, I was getting lots of fight tapes because that was like a that league was cruising, and it was just kind of in the infancy of YouTube and on the fight message boards, and like the Quebec League, everybody was talking about it, and like and like you said, every every night there was going to be five or six fights, and and it wasn't just Joe Blow versus Joe Schmo. I mean, these were like. I mean, you guys were names, man. Like, there's minor league dudes and NHL guys, and it was like, like Craig Brunel and Cote and Thero and Bajerni and yourself and Dodie Wood and, I mean, Mark Major and Varhawk. I mean, it was like the names of names, and every team had guys, and it was just like, oh, the for a fight fan, that league was like fantasy camp. Yeah. And honestly, like, uh, like the the names were. Like it, the names were part of it, but it was like so. Uh, I know on your podcast there, uh, Screw St. Louis had mentioned it's a big show there, and yada yada yada. And I got nothing but respect for Todd St. Louis, but I'll tell you what, firsthand, like you cannot take anything away from that league as far as toughness because it was legit, and it was legit every single night, and there was no jokes. There's, there was no. I mean, even the number twos and the number threes, when they were going at it, like, you know, you get your odd guy that fights defensive or seat belts or whatever else, but it was all the time, man. Like, you had to show up all the time, and it was legit. Oh, absolutely. Well, I know it was. Yeah, for sure. And I know guys that have played in that league, and they were, yeah, they were, it was, you know, there was no, you, you yeah, there was no, you were, it was no fuck around. Like, it was, yeah, I mean, afterwards, yeah, you put on the show and you WWF'd it, and I know that's what the owners wanted and got the crowd into it and everything else, but, yeah, when it came down to to nut-cutting time, it was, uh, yeah, there was no fooling around. No, absolutely. Well, I'm going to throw some names at you from, you know, from the league that uh, that you took on and, and name guys from that, you know. I, I think we have to obviously start with Joel. What were we Thero? Tero? How do you say it? Terrio, yeah, you got Terrio, Joel Terrio. I mean, he was uh, legendary in that league, and I've heard some crazy stories. What What are your uh, What are your takes? I know you fought him many times. How was uh, Joel? Oh, he in my books, man. That guy is uh, is one of the ultimate. I mean, uh, like he could skate, he could play the game. He was a complete menace on the ice, and Every single fight that he got into, it was like he wanted to make it a highlight real fight. It was like he's one of those guys. And then to have to do it, like, when did he retire? I think it was two years ago, finally, or, yep. or three. Yeah, something like that. He'd come back and forth, back and forth. But, yeah, it was like last year, two years ago. Yep. Like, I'm 41 years old right now, and I've been working and in, in a civil lifestyle for the last, you know, 10, 11, 12 years. And to, to think about still doing it, like, on a steady basis, like, you know, sure, the money be good or whatever else, but, like, he he did it at a high level the whole entire time. Oh, yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Well, yeah, you like you said, and uh, you know, and go fight these twenty-four-year-olds that are all jacked up, and oh yeah, and then, uh, and the like you said, at, and like you said, at a, at a high level, like I mean, it wasn't like he was some punching bag at the end; he was still winning at the end too. And one of my favorite things about him, and this, like, 
you can't teach this. Like, this is something that comes from deep within. Um, each fight that he got him to, like, he wanted to make it a highlight real fight. The first time I ever squared off against him, he dropped his gloves, ripped his helmet off, and then skated towards me really fast. And I was, like, worried that we were going to get into it right then. Like, he was kind of trying to get the jump on me. And he's like, let's make it a good one. Let's make it a good one. Meaning, like, and then he circled around and then came back at me. So he wanted to make it a highlight real fight, and he wanted me to know it. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and I've watched a lot of your fights. I've watched the majority of them. You were actually never a big showboat guy. No, I, I – but I got – so it's funny you mentioned that. So I got a little bit more into that. Like, I didn't mind kind of showing up, like, putting on a little bit of a show for the square off. Because that's – so as St. Louis said, uh, that league was all about the show. Well, okay – the show might have been within the like the way you square off instead of it just being uh, drop the gloves like right off the right off the line. Like in that Quebec League, you square off and you kind of play around quite a bit before you end up engaging, and that might be taking your buckets off, spinning your bucket, or and then ending up at center ice, whatever it was. But there was a little bit more of a show like that, and I ended up kind of embracing some of those things uh, down the road, but. Honestly, like those little things, they do add to the to the fight at the end of the day. Oh, absolutely! Now, um, I was going to ask you: Did you? Now, I I know there was. I'm not going to make you say it. I'll say it for you, but because I know what happened. But I know owners came in and you know there was money laid out in advance. Like, well, you briefly talked about it. Money laid out in advance to start brawls, like in pregame and shit. Yeah, so, and there, there were different things. Like, they weren't always, like, to start a brawl. Like, they were, man, and I'm not saying which owner did it. I'm not saying uh, which team it was that did it. But there was little envelopes and there was little meetings before the games. And they said, okay, if you go after this guy or if you go after this guy, this envelope's yours. Or if you do this, this envelope's yours. And it was interesting because it added to uh, – added to the whole thing and you know let's say a guy gets an extra thousand bucks one night for you know going and challenging the bench or whatever he does then uh that was that was a pretty interesting extra extra thing about that league well i know and some of the owners would fight amongst each other because you know okay you started the brawl or whatever they had a big brawl you know in their rank so, of course, they'd fire up, okay, well, they're coming to our town next week. We're going to fire everything up, and then nothing would happen, and the owners would get mad at each other because it's like, well, if we're going to put on a show in your barn, you got to return the favor in ours, and sometimes it didn't happen, and, oh, there's all that shit going on. Yeah, it's almost like you were there. Well, I heard I heard a lot of stories. I felt like I was there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's true. That, that was like that. It was legit. Like, I mean, uh there were different teams that have uh, had rivalries that there was constant shit shows between the teams. And it was like, if we played Verdun, we knew it was going to be some sort of a shit show. If we played Laval, we knew it was going to be some sort of a shit show. Just that's how things went. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of Verdun, okay, well, we got to get into it because he is one of the bigger names, especially on my followers on Twitter. I always talk about him. And of course he went on to the UFC and everything else was Steve Bosse. I know you guys are friends and I think you you were telling me you got him into the whole deal 
let's let, let can you can you kind of give a, my listeners the the history of Steve Bossy? Yeah, and I, I hope to not go on for too long on this, but there is uh, a significant story to tell here, and I love that guy so much. Uh, he uh, so when I first went to C- Quebec, I landed in Saint Jean, and I was training at Perfecto. Uh, Gym, which was in Iberville, which was like 10 minutes across the Richelieu River from Saint-Jean. And uh, I remember Steve coming up to me, I think he was 19 years old, like in a little white uh, white beater and jacked right up. And he says, uh, Dean, it's nice to meet you one day. I, I hope it's a big dream of mine that I can be a number one tough guy in your league. And uh, it's very nice for me to meet you. And from then, uh, sorry about my French accent or whatever, but... Uh, I was going to say, that's pretty on, good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so from then on, we became pretty good friends, and uh, uh, his girlfriend spoke English, so we had them over for dinner lots because uh, my wife and uh, my daughter didn't uh, speak much French, so it was nice to have English friends. Um, and then I think in between the first season and second season, I worked with him for three weeks he's a lumberjack and sells uh firewood and uh so they're chains they're cutting they're cutting big logs of wood with a chainsaw and then hucking pieces of lumber all day long which was like probably the hardest physical work i'd ever done in my entire life like and i'd work on the farm and like through bales of hay and all that stuff but this was like i was sore after every single day and he did that daily so he was he was small, or smaller, but jacked and strong. And uh, we became buddies, and he tried to learn English, and I tried to learn French with him. And uh, I think it was the next, the start of the next season, I got him a tryout with uh, the Mission of Saint-Jean, and he was from Iberville, so like, like I said, 15 minutes away from uh, Saint-Jean, and did well, well enough. Uh, as a tough guy, he was coming out of like major AAA or something like that. And uh, towards the end of the training camp, we found out that um, Verdun actually owned the rights to him as a player because Saint-Jean came from Juliet uh, a couple years before, and Juliet was six hours away. So Verdun actually was the closest uh, team to where Saint-Jean was that owned the rights to any players that wanted to play in that vicinity. Does that make sense? Yep. So... Uh, Verdun took him from us right before the season started. And Steve at the time was strong and, uh, you know, average with, with, uh, his skills at hockey, but struggled for the first, I want to say year, two, first, first two years, he kind of fought the twos and the threes and maybe struggled with balance or something like that. And, uh, and then it got to a point where, so shortly after I had won the hockey enforcers, I'd come back to Sorrell and I was, I was out with a broken hand at the time. And, uh, Steve and I were partying together and he, uh, he had mentioned, so we're in St. Jean and we're partying together. he had mentioned that I think he just knocked out Hamilton at the time. And it was a big knockout for him. Like it was a huge step for him to knock out Hamilton. And he's like, uh, I need to ask you, permission next game when we play each other i want to i want to fight you for my career and it was a friendly like it was respect like he wasn't like he wasn't asking me for anything other than like 
I respect you as a tough guy, and I'm asking you permission for us to do this, and it's for my career. And I was like, man, I love you, kid, and like, I don't want to have to do this because it's a it's a lose lose for me. I'm like, fight Marasty, fight uh, Lambert, fight one of our other guys. Like, like I just won the hockey forces. It's not gonna like if I lose to you, it's not gonna look good for me. And he's like, okay, you know, fair enough, but. Uh, It'd be a big favor for me if you did this. So anyways, we ended it like that, and then the next game, he fought Morasti first in Sorel, so our hometown. And in um, Morasti, as I was out with the uh, broken hand, Morasti was fighting the two toughest guys on every single team every single night. So his hands were messed up, and his face was a little bit messed up. And he fought, he fought uh, Bosse first, and it was an average fight. I don't think Bosse got the best of him or anything, that one. But uh, so everyone in the room, they're kind of looking at me like, you got to take this guy next, you know, next period. So I go out there, second period, and uh, I see he's out there. I give him the tap, and he's more than ready. And you can watch the fight on YouTube. We score off, and we go, we go close to center ice, and he, he connects with me right on the button. And uh, right, on the, right on the chin, and he dropped me in Sorrel, in my home barn, in front of all my fans. And he skates around for a minute celebrating, a minute and a half celebrating with his arm up. In my hometown, and like in my barn, right? Like, can you understand what kind of a, that's a statement, right? It is, yep. Right, so I go to the gym the next day that we both train at, so back home in uh, St. Jean in Iberville, and I walk in the gym, and I'm like, I lost to Bosse last night. They're like, we know, we've been watching the tape all morning. So what he had done, that son of a bitch, he brought the tape in there, <laughs> and all these guys were watching the watching him beat me all morning long, and I was like, man, that son of a bitch. Like, I was pissed. So for two weeks, I did nothing but train and focus on the next time we're going to fight. The next time we're going to fight was going to be in Verdun, um, so, and I was, I would say, other than the hockey enforcers, I was never so mentally prepared for one any one single event in my entire life, other than that fight with, uh, that sec, that rematch fight with Bosse. And it was probably one of my, one of my most one-sided uh, victories as far as, like, inflicting damage. Oh, you caught him, for sure, yeah. And, uh, I hit him with the, I hit him with the jab coming in, which stunned him, and then I, I just I kept connecting with with heavy rice, which he was never able to recover from. I just kept on coming with him, and then I don't know if, if you notice in the video, I raised my hand for a second, not to showboat too much, but then I I put it down and go to the box. Yeah, well, I gotta say before, yeah, you were really a big after fight celebration guy. Um, well, you touched on it as you were talking there with Bosse. I mean, everybody has seen the Bosse Morasti like war. Basically, I, I don't know how many times they fought. Was it six or seven? I, it was a ridiculous the amount of time, and probably the most some of the most vicious hockey fights I've ever seen. Um, let let well, let's talk about those fights. But just what I mean, playing with John for a number of years and hanging out and everything. What what are your feelings on John Morasti? Oh, like, in all truthfulness, after all the guys that I played with and all the guys that I fought, um, there's no one 
there's no one that really beats his uh, his tenacity and like that's a tenacity is like the smallest word I can come up with. Like he, he was just such a ferocious um, fighter, and he would like literally you, you couldn't. There was no guy big enough. There was no guy like he would take on anyone. It didn't matter, and more often than not. He would make everyone look silly. Like anyone he fought, he would make them look silly because he would just weather the storm, and then he would and he would smile and he would, you know, bring the fans on and wave his hands to the fans, and then end up like finishing and looking incredible. Even though off the hop he might look like he's taking a bunch of punches, uh, he was just impeccable at that whole the whole process like weathering the storm being evasive uh to punches like he was really really good at uh let's say he's fighting a big guy and all those punches that are coming down raining down on he would just nod his chin every single time and they'd roll off the top of his head and then he would always finish hard and then man that whole bossy saga it was one of those things where uh bossy had that uh, weird hook that not a lot of other tough guys had. Most other heavyweights, they were coming straight down the pipe with the right. And John was really good at, like I said, ducking his chin and being evasive from those where Bossy was coming in with a hook from the side and, and Morassi was like right there at that perfect height where it kept on landing every single time. And, and, Bo- and uh, Morassi was just way, way, way too proud to ever admit victory so that's why he kept on going back and they kept on doing it again and again and again yeah well yeah. well i was gonna say here t- i we talked to before what were your first impressions of john when he showed up in sorrel when he came from yeah uh, that's, a good, that's a good question and john and i are such good friends and i don't mind saying this because i've said this to him as well um man he was such a kid when he first came to uh sorrel like he was his, he was a baby face, and he was small. And we went for lunch after our very first practice, and he's telling me all these different guys that he beat up. And I'm kind of looking at him like with a question mark in the back of my head, like, dude, you're coming to the, the toughest league in the world by far, no hands down. And uh, and you're acting like this. I'm like, man, I think you're going to be, you know, rudely – rudely interrupted with your with your thought processor but my hat goes off to him 100 percent because the first three fight three uh three games we uh we played he fought the toughest guy on every team and made every single guy look stupid yep and that's like john might not have like he may not have hurt a lot of guys as far as like you know you look at a guy like marty melvachuk or a guy like kote or you know those guys had a different sort of i'd like to put myself in those uh in that kind of in that uh environment as well like if guys knew they were fighting me like i could end up landing a hard right and they were worried about that right um where john didn't really have that same kind of fear factor the only the biggest fear factor that john had which actually was bigger than the rest of it is he could make you look stupid yeah he could make you look stupid in front of three or five thousand people and 
what makes a bigger game change than that? You know, let's say, you know, Sorrell's down, uh, you know, 5-2 to another team, and then John goes out there and fights their their heavyweight who's six foot four, two 250 pounds, and then John makes him look stupid. Well, you can't, you can't create that much of a game shift any other way than just that. No, well, absolutely. And like you said, well, yeah, and he's fighting these guys, and halfway through the fight, he's got his arm up, waving to the crowd and laughing and smiling. Oh, yeah. Like it'd be, yeah. Well, I could, like, fighting him would be like, you little bat, like, I could imagine the frustration, but this little shit laughing at you while you're fighting him, but, and, and waving the, and encouraging the crowd, too. Like, oh, like, if there was ever a, like, he was the ultimate showman, for sure. 100%. I agree with that 100%. And actually, uh, I'll say this. He, he was in, and he had, he had to do an interview one time, and uh, they said, if, if you, and about all the guys you fought that, that you haven't fought yet, that you want to test yourself against, who would it be? And we had played, we were playing for the same team at the time. He said, if there was one guy I, I'd, uh, I'd like to fight to be Dean Marion. And it was because he wanted to test himself, right? And, like, that's a mindset that you got to think about for a bit. Like, not everyone has that thing where they want to test themselves against the, you know, wh- whoever's doing well. Like, not everyone wants to bring themselves up against the toughest guy all the time. And that, that was a huge uh, – I, I really respected that he said that because that was a huge compliment to me. No, absolutely. Yeah, and, uh, well, kind of just going through, a, a name we had talked about briefly, and he played in the Quebec League, and uh, I know his name's going to come up here a little later when we're talking about someone else, but uh, you played against Donald Brashear, and that yeah. he, made, he made a big splash in the lockout when he signed with the Quebec Radio X, and like you said, very good player, obviously. Um, now, Oh well, I'll let you. What are your feelings on Donald Brashear and uh, and playing against him? What was that like? Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you this: there's not too many guys uh, out there that I've played with that I got ill feelings towards, one way or another. There's a couple of them, um, just because the way they just carried on, or one way or another. But Donald Brashear is one of those guys, and uh, like when he came to our league. And this is the precedent of it. When he came to our league, he got initial huge respect from all of us, like all of those heavyweights. Like we were like, man, he's coming here. That takes balls. Like he's not just, you know, going in there to tie up or whatever. He's coming to the toughest league in the world, which is like that takes huge balls. <clears throat> and uh, we were playing, I think it was our very first, it was our home opener in Sorrell against Quebec. And I chased him around quite a bit throughout that game. And I ended up having a really, really good hit against him uh, earlier in the game. He was coming up the wing, and he had his head down. And I, and I had a really good hit against him. His bucket came off, his gloves came off, and then I stood over top of him and asked him to fight, and he wouldn't fight me. And later on in the game, once the game was uh, sided one way or another, I forget who was winning, but I, I uh, asked him to go again, and he's like, sure. So we square off, and... Right off the hop, he grabbed me in the center of my jersey and pulled the jersey over my head. So I wasn't able to see anything whatsoever. So I'll, I'll be all admit I took a, I bailed like I I flipped over backwards and uh, and went down just because I wasn't going to take 
his heavy left hands with my jersey over my face. I just wasn't going to do it. So I went down, no, and he hit no. me. He hit, he hit me. Wait a second. I don't think I went down yet. I think we tied up. We tied up once I, once he had the jersey over my face, and then jersey came down, refs were in between, and he stroked me when, when the refs were in. And then I fell down, and then he hit me four more times when I went down on the ice. And to me, that was like the snakiest, weaselest thing. You know, like, you, you're, kind of, you're an NHL tough guy that all of us respect, and that's the kind of stuff you're pulling? I don't know. I didn't like it, and I just never respected him. And, uh, you know, after knowing Probert and, and many of the other guys, like, they didn't respect me there, and it was for a reason. Yep. Well, uh well, another guy that you fought, another minor league legend that would come uh, sort of in and out of the Quebec League at the time was Frank Bialois. You got any good Frank stories? No, I don't. I fought him once, and I, as far as I know, I think it was a, I think it was a pretty good fight. But I don't think he was in our league for very long. I, I don't think so. But uh, yeah, obviously I know the name, and uh, he was an animal. But uh, yeah, I fought him once. I think it was a pretty good fight. Yep. Um, well. Well, and another name that that comes up, and it was sort of uh, you know, and uh, and he made a really big splash in the league. And you talk about a character, and I can remember when he first came to the Quebec League. I remember my buddy phoning me, and he's just like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Because he's a Saskatchewan guy, and I knew <laughs> I knew who he was because I had heard the junior stories and whatever was. And I know you fought him numerous times with Derek Parker. Yeah, <laughs> he's a character. Derek Parker. Yeah. Do you have any Parker stories? Yeah. So, I got lots of Parker stories. I just don't know how you want me to roll with this. Um, okay, so, the first time I I uh, met him was in the Hockey Enforcers, uh, the first original big meeting. And uh, I had heard that he'd led the league I don't I think it was the Central League the year before he led the league in uh fighting majors. Uh yep. but I'd never really heard of him much else other than that. And uh when I was going into the hockey enforcers, like I was in my pretty much my peak performance kind of years. Like I, I was doing really well. I had been boxing on the side for years at the time and uh I felt really confident in my ability leading into the hockey enforcers I was like very, very confident going into that. So here, uh, Derek Parker, he was uh, he was an oddball. He uh, he kind of stood off to the side and didn't really engage with anyone, uh, which is weird. And this is another thing I wanted to mention. Uh, so even though uh, every one of the hockey forces, we all we knew we had to fight each other. It was almost like a training camp where everyone just shows up and they, you know we're all shooting the breeze and getting along. Uh, it was because we're all cut from the same cloth. We're all the same type of people, whether it's, you know, big hearts or, you know, happy go lucky. And everyone, the hockey enforcers, like from the time everyone showed up, we all got along really, really well, which was weird because we knew we were all going to have to fight each other. Well, Parker, he was like creepy. He'd sit off to the side and like lean against the post and just kind of, like watch us all and everyone I remember they're all like who is that guy why is he being creepy like that why doesn't he just come and talk to us um Parker however he had a really good uh style that was defensive much like uh 
Ty Domi's style. So he he swung he swung pretty heavily to the it would be to his right, staying away from my right. And he was really, really effective at that swing, coming back with his own right. Um, but it wasn't like you're – in my mind, you can make that kind of fight look okay, but the best fight you can possibly have is the proverb style where you're just stringing a guy out and you're just throwing down the pipe the whole entire time. Those are the best fights ever. Yep. Yeah. No, yeah, he definitely had a had a style. Um well, yeah, well, we're talking about the hockey enforcement. So, and I, like, I can get into that a little bit more, but it, there's, like, we kind of got to, uh, we kind of got to break it up a little bit because, like, in, uh, so there was a hockey enforcement, then we come back from the hockey enforcement, and then I had to fight him again. He was playing for St. Tia Saint. I think he, he might have, he might have beat me the first time we fought when I was in Sorel, and then from there we fought a couple more times, but, you know, none, none of it was like, really spectacular like one way or another it wasn't like he you know beat me real bad or i beat him real bad and then we ended up playing together for a short time and then uh and then i i retired but uh yeah he's a tough guy and uh you know i give him respect he was a little bit weird during the hockey forces thing but uh yeah it is what it is well one guy before we i'm gonna ask about the hockey we're gonna get into this hockey enforcers here right away um but actually, hold up. Okay, another guy. Another guy I was going to ask you about, um, and he played there forever and ever in the Quebec League, and he was a game dude. Was Curtis Tidball? Yeah, Curtis Tidball. He was man. He was a gamer. I remember uh, he had come. He must have been a little bit younger than I was. He came a little bit later, but uh, I remember I was. I had come back home, kind of retired, and then you know, needed to go back and make a couple bucks. And uh, I played against, uh, who was he playing for back then? Uh, Tedford. Yeah, that's right. So we squared off and fought uh, once. And then uh, in the box, he's like, you want to go again right away? And I'm like, well, I, I can't turn him down. But, I mean, that's a two-fight rule, so I'm going to be out of the game right away. But, uh yeah, so we we did that, which wasn't my favorite thing to do. I would have preferred to, you know, play a little bit and, you know, carry on with the game, but he wanted to get it done with right away. So we went two back-to-back out of the game. There you go. Yeah, you wrap it up quick. Uh, another name I was going to ask you, I was just, as I'm scrolling your fight card, uh, and he, he's definitely a character, and the people out there will know, um, Brandon Christian. Yeah, man, I... Uh, like I said earlier, there's not too many guys that I, I don't like or I have ill feelings towards because I truly feel like uh, most of the guys in that role were all kind of cut from the same cloth. There's uh, there's a lot of similarities uh, character-wise, big heart, easy going, that kind of fun to be around. And he was one of those guys that – him and Hamilton, Jason Hamilton was another guy, just always barking, always yapping, like trying to prove something, like, you know – all you got to do is show up. You want to go, let's go. I I don't care. We'll do it. But it's just always yapping. And Christian was kind of like that too. And like one time we fought and uh, he was like, you know, kind of like you. He was kind of, there was not a clean break. And he ended up kicking me in the stomach. I was above him and he kicked me in the stomach and like sliced me for, uh, you know, at a 
freaking six inch gash in my stomach because of it. Like that's that stuff's not necessary. I mean, you can, you can achieve uh, more through different ways uh, in the game than doing something stupid like that. Yeah, well, you must have just lost your shit when he kicked you. You know what? I didn't. I just kind of looked at him and shake my head and and, and skated off. But uh, yeah, you know what? It's it, it's guys like that that they're doing stuff like that because they can't beat you straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They, at, the end, at the end of the day, what does that mean? That means that they're frustrated because they can't beat you. They can't beat you fair. You know, absolutely. And, uh, well, like, I mean, shit, dude, I, I could sit and talk to you for hours just throwing names at you from the league. But uh, we have to kind of get on to this. Prince George, 2005, the black and blue hockey enforcers pay-per-view. And like I said, anybody listening, go to my YouTube channel, check it out. It's, I got, it's all on there. But it was a pay-per-view event. Two guys square out, and it's a, it's a fight tournament. And uh, what was the? How did you get involved in this? And what? And when you first heard it, did you kind of like, yeah, sure? Like what? Like let let's go. Let give me the history of the hockey enforcers. How did you hear about it? And what were your thoughts? And and the whole deal here. So, so you want to know about the hockey enforcers? Yep. Okay. So uh, yeah. So um, obviously, it was one of those things that the NHL guys couldn't be a part of. Many American guy, American League guys couldn't be a part of because they were signed to NHL contracts. So it was basically uh, who's who of minor league tough guys that could participate. And uh, at at first there was, I think there was going to be 32 or 34 guys, and they were uh, playing with toying with different locations, but um, no one would sanction the event. So I think there was like honestly, like, three different locations before it ended up landing in in, uh, in Prince George. And uh, I was one of those guys that they reached out to early um, uh, because of my status in the Quebec League. But, uh, you know, a lot of other guys, too, like, uh, you know, Jason Simon and Gates and, uh, you know, uh, Jamie Linehouse and different guys who, who had any sort of stature in the minor pro league. So they reached out to us. And I was one of the first guys they reached out to. So I was super excited about that because, uh, you could win some money. And at the time, uh, like I had said earlier, like I was, I was really, really confident in my style and, uh, and knew that I could compete against the best on any day and going into that thing. My head was super, super strong. Uh, but it was such a weird, experience like flying in there and uh um i don't know if you want to interject here quickly but uh the uh the first official meeting that we had um (laughs) (laughs) it was so hilarious i mean me and jamie linos we were having dinner in the hotel room uh because we both flew out of montreal together and like i said we're we're best friends at the time and uh uh we had a beer with dinner, and it was, you know, I, two days before, maybe even three days before the event, and I remember uh, a bunch of other guys rolling in, and they seen us with beers, and they're like, oh, you guys are having beers? We're having beers, too, because I'm pretty sure the event was taking care of our meals at the time, so 
a couple hours later as we roll into the official hall of the uh of the event with cameras everywhere and uh you know microphones and everything steve reed uh who's from leamington ontario which is very very close to kingsville ontario where i played junior but i i didn't know him when uh back in the day i just knew him from when he played for Sherbrooke. so he rolls into the event half cut and jumps up on a, a big circular table and he's preaching to all the uh, all the cameras and microphones. He's like, put the money in my account. I'll give you my bank account number right now. No sense in carrying on with the event. <laughs> that was, it was pretty neat. And like Link, Link kept like the, the actual, the first meeting was hilarious because the owner or the, the the guy who was putting the event on, he could barely get a word out ed- edgewise because everyone kept on interrupting him and asking questions and silly stuff like that. Well, you guys didn't really know the rule. Like, I can remember watching the footage and stuff. There was no real, like, you guys didn't really know the rules, did you? Well, so we knew that the fights were going to be one minute. We didn't really, I don't think, uh, looking back, we really knew that they were going to stop the uh time if the helmets came off and uh as you can probably understand it would have been way better way way better if once the helmets came off they just would have left them off um because that ended up creating lulls in the fight which uh took away from the whole event as a whole did were you happy that you had to wear gloves uh (laughs) that's an interesting question because of how how much trouble I had with breaking my hands. But, yeah, actually, so those uh, MMA gloves or those uh, four-ounce gloves, what they're meant for more than anything else is to protect your hand. So I was happy about that, yeah. Yeah. Did, well, did you have trouble grabbing, though? Did you Any problem with that? No, no problem with uh, grabbing whatsoever. And, like like I said, those, uh, those weren't to protect the face. They were pro- to protect the hand, those gloves. Yeah, yeah. Why, well, speaking of that first uh, meeting, was Link was fairly pissed up too, wasn't he? I think he was. I don't. I don't really like. Like I, like I said, like uh, in the first official meeting, Link kept saying stuff to uh, to the the owner or the the guy who was putting it on, and it, it made for like a hilarious first meeting. Like, it's just like a bunch of kids, right? A bunch of kids that can't control themselves. You put them all in, in a room and waiting for an event like that. I mean, Well, oh, I mean, kids. you get testosterone flying, beer flying. I mean, because I know Link stormed out. I know that. He was all pissed off. Something about the rules or something. I can't remember what it was, but I know he stormed out of that, the first one, meeting. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I can't really recall 100% but I'm pretty sure you're right but so okay so it's the night of the event it's going off you're uh, you're in there um, like so the nerves got to be going your was your your first fight was against Parker right yeah you betcha <clears throat> and, and well and you obviously you won um, <laughs> well here you explain to did what happened in the fight and what happened after that fight Oh yeah, you know, you know what's coming next. It was such an interesting. Uh, so, anyone who's seen that fight, it was really, really close. And actually, Parker hit me with a with a really, really hard right, 
that stunned me pretty good and almost buckled me. And I'll, and I'll say this, and I'll be honest with you, if his balance wasn't as good as it was at the time, I probably would have went down. And that would have been the end of it for me. But his balance was so good, I kind of grabbed on him, pulled myself back up, and then ended the fight being super, super aggressive. And you know what? I've watched that fight over and over and over several times. Even though it was close, if you watch it and dissect it uh, truthfully, you will see that I am the aggressor and that I did deserve the W at the end of it. Okay, so the fight the fight's over. Hey, you get your hand raised. What happens after this? Okay, so after that, I think I, I think it was about twenty minutes later. I'm in my dressing room, so they split us into dressing rooms of four guys. And uh, all of a sudden, Parker comes into my dressing room, and he's like, got the camera crew with him, and then all the people with the microphones. They're all the you know the fuzzy microphones. They're all sticking them out in front of me. And Parker's calling me on saying, that was bullshit, I knocked you out, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, kid, I don't know what to tell you. Like, they get, like you hit me with a good punch. He definitely didn't knock me out because that's what he was saying. He's like, I knocked you out, that's bullshit. You didn't knock me out, but you hit me with a good shot. And I said, the judges gave it to me. I said, there's nothing else to do. Get out of here. So he left and then came back in there 15 minutes later with the camera crew again. And, uh, and I ended up having to pick up a metal folding chair and threatened to hit him with it before he took off and all the, the camera crew and the guys with the microphones all went running out of there but yeah that's how that went and I think actually actually I know he went onto the ice and grabbed the uh, headset from one of the judges and uh, was telling the judges that uh, telling the fans that it was bullshit he knocked me out blah 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 he wanted a rematch and Obviously, that never happened, but what happened from that is Jamie Linehouse, who's a smart guy, he picked up on the fact that there's some animosity. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll fight Parker as a grudge match to fill the void because I think there was two other fights that ended up being canceled. Link was one of them, and Steve Reed might have been another one um, that created a void in the whole pay-per-view event. So... Jamie picked up on that and said, I'll fight, I'll fight Parker as a grudge match. And it was one of the best fights of the night. Yeah, no, absolutely it was. Um, yeah, well, that event, yeah, that, well, Raider, Mark Raider was there and he broke his skate. I felt bad for Raider too. He broke his skate blade. And, you know, was, yeah, that's it. That's it. it, was, it I don't think it was Steve Reed. It was Mark Raider. He broke his skate. And then Gates was another one. I think he broke his skate and something else happened. Well, I was going to say with the link thing, because that was, cause, so my friends and I are watching this on paper, because this is like our dream, oh, a fight tournament, this is going to be great. So we're all sitting at Buddy's house drinking beers, and we're taking bets, and and I thought, like, this is going to be tailor-made for Link, because it's like, this dude, yeah, like you said before, right, you can hit him with a two-by-four, and it's not like he's going to go down or anything, so it's like, oh, Gates should do really well. Well, Steve Reed beats him in the first fight of the night. Reed beats him, and I, of course, we're sitting there like, who the fuck is Steve? I'm not knocking you, Steve, but we're like, who the hell is Steve Reed? You're like, you know, and uh, what happened? And then Link didn't come back to fight again. Like, do you know, was he, like, I heard rumors, one, that he was, he had a, he was concussed, which I don't know about that. Two, he was just drunk and didn't want to do it anymore. But it also came clear that if you'd lost once, there was no way to kind of come back and win any money. So it was like, well, what's the point of fighting again then? Yeah, I think that's what happened more than anything else is uh, 
Link just realized he was out and he wasn't going to win. So he was just like, yeah, whatever. Okay, I'm out. Well, did, did Link losing to Reed surprise you? Um, yeah. Uh, Reed was no killer, but he just, he came, he, he showed up. And uh, like we talked about before, like one night someone can be there and uh, the next time they, they're not there and Reed just showed up for that and, uh, and Link didn't. Yeah, well, that's like, it's such a unique thing too, right? I mean, so you have one minute, it's like, you know, just if you're the aggressor and stuff, I mean, yeah, you, like you said, you can kind of come out on, on, it's a whole different deal than, you know, fighting at center ice in Verdun or something. But, uh, so going through what you, so you beat Parker trying to, who was your second fight against? My second fight was, uh, was Eddie it? O'Toole. So yeah, yeah. we talked about this before. So Eddie O'Toole and I believe Trent Poskin, they were voted in from the fans because, uh, they had, like uh, I think it was dead junior kind of resumes, but never really had any pro um, pro resumes. So those two were voted in. So I ended up fighting uh, Eddie O'Toole, and I think what ha- I'm, I'm pretty sure actually. So when I first went in, I ended up taking a freaking backward spill against Eddie O'Toole, and then came right back up and then just unloaded with my rights and wouldn't even stop because I knew I was behind the eight ball by falling. Um, so, yeah, I, I had to come back really quick, and I, I didn't even stop, and then I ended up dropping him, breaking his nose pretty good. Yeah, and then and then the next fight's the final, isn't it? No, then the next one was Rushton. And, oh, right, right. Uh, the, the story with Rushton is really cool because uh, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine still to this day, and we had played together uh in Sorrell and he was one of those guys that sometimes would would lack the confidence that he needed. However, like ninety five percent of the fights that I ever seen him in, he would absolutely destroy guys because he was a lefty and he was strong and he could throw super, super fast. So he wouldn't always fight the number ones, but the guys that he did fight, he would demolish clearly and easily. And I kind of knew that uh, going into that fight that he would, he might have been a little bit nervous. And uh, when we squared off, he he came in squaring off right, which was a huge mistake for him because it ended up setting him back to start with. And then as soon as he switched to left, if you watch that fight over and over and over again, if he would have went lefty for righty for with me, like it would have been really, really close because once he ended up switching back to left in that fight, it was pretty much close until the end. Like, we didn't stop. We just kept on hammering each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so throughout this event, um, you, you end up with Mike Segroy in the final. Yeah. So, and that's no joke. I mean, he was, uh, he's a big dude, like you were saying before, a tough guy. Um <laughs> you you kind of you briefly touched on when we were on the phone earlier. Something about Link was he giving you tips or something? <laughs> yeah, okay, Link. You know what? Link is a. I, I don't feel bad saying this. Link's a bully at at on the best of days. Like that's all. That's his whole game. All he does is want to bully people into one thing or another and then at the very end of the fight or at the end of the event 
or before the Segroy sorry event, uh, he was trying to coach me on how to fight Segroy, and then after the event was demanding money for for giving me tips on how to beat him. But anyways, uh, yeah, Segroy I knew was going to be my toughest match of the night because he had beat me when he played for I believe Rockford when I was in Muskegon, yep. and uh, I knew he was a big skilled guy who. Uh, who knew what he was doing, so I knew he was going to be one of my toughest competitors, if it were not Link. Well, and, hey, and, as, as well, you beat him, and uh, I asked you this on the phone, I said, no bullshit going back, do you think you won the fight? Because it was close. I, I watched it yeah, back. Yeah, I want to I I ask you this, legitimately, do you think I did? I do, but I'll put it to you this way, if they had said Mike won, I wouldn't have been like, oh, that's bullshit. It'd be like, yeah, all right. You know, it's like, it was close. It, it, it probably could have went either way. I think um, it was sort of right at the I think he kind of had the thing at the end. So the only, the only thing that was in my favor at the time was that, like, takedown. And yeah. the takedown wasn't, it wasn't even intentional. It was just, and it wasn't a punch, and that really actually shouldn't even really truly matter as far as who wins or loses, but how people view the way hockey fights. It's the optics. Yeah. It's the optics of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I knew from that little thing that I had the W at the time. Um, but I, I also knew that he never hit me with anything hurt. Um, the most I got hit that whole entire night was by Rushton. And I got hit several times by Rushton, but I got the win on that. But with, with Segroy, uh, it was we were we were a bit defensive, and uh, we never I never connected with a ton of like really good shots, and he never connected with a ton of good shots with me. But I knew that I might have had the advantage because of that takedown. So at the end of it, they were trying to convince us to go another minute. Well, wasn't really. They were trying real hard. They just said, "Do you guys want to go another minute?" And I was like, "Ah." I think I got the W right now. I don't want to take the chance because it's either 62,000 or 31,000, right? So I ended up sticking with where I was, and I'm happy I did. However, when I say I'm happy I did, there is still a part of me that says I would have loved to have gone another minute and and showed everyone for sure, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I know what you're saying, yeah. But it was certainly – that was a great fight and what a unique event and – you're definitely, uh, you know, something would go down in enforcer history for sure. The one and the only champion of the black and blue. Uh, after it was done and you're in the locker room, was there any kind of hard feelings with Segroy and yourself? No, not not even a little bit. Actually, we had beers together after and it was all good. And uh, like I said, from, from there, we've never actually hung out at all, but uh, um, we stay in touch through uh, to Facebook and Instagram and uh I really, I really like what he's doing as a person outside of hockey, and uh, you know, mentoring and coaching younger players because that's something that uh, Sean McMorrow had touched on as well. We're given an opportunity as enforcers who, uh, you know, younger kids or people can look up to, and we've got to uh, capitalize on the opportunity to give them positive feedback and. Uh, and create the right path for them, and I think that if that can happen at least once in our lives, then we're doing we're doing something good. No, absolutely, for sure. And uh, yeah, well, 
Hold on, I gotta go back. Link was really trying to get money from you for giving you coaching tips. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah, I'm not lying, man. And he, like that, it didn't surprise me one tiny bit. I know him well enough. Like he's one of those guys who just there's there's nothing that'll surprise you out of him. No, no, there's a million Link stories. Um, hey, did you ever? And like he literally, like what he was telling me at the time was like, you know, completely amateur bullshit that he was just like he was demanding five hundred dollars <laughs> and honestly I think I gave him a hundred and I said here beat it this is all you're getting yeah, well <laughs> you got him up hey did you did you make any merchandise and sell it up there um did I make any well so no the, the, the reason I ask is I know I, I do uh, made link gate shirts and he was selling them at the event team link shirts and I know he made a bunch of money on those things. I was going to say, did you, uh, well, it was Eric, right? I was going to say, did you, did you get any, was there any Dean the Machine shirts going around Prince George? No, but I'm mad that I never even thought of that before. Oh, I was going to uh, say, oh, it's too bad you should. Yeah. Oh, hell, I would have bought a Dean the, Dean the Machine shirt. Uh, yeah, you missed out, man. Merchant, we got to merch this stuff. Uh, <laughs> Well, so, well, there you go. That's what a unique event, the hockey, uh, the enforcers, uh, pay-per-view. Um, they actually had another one of those. It was a wholly different crew and stuff, but it was in, was it Finland? A few years later. You know what? I, I heard of that. Parker won that, didn't he? Well, Parker was there, Swanson, McMorrow, and then it was a couple Finnish, I think Sammy Hellanius was in it. There was a few Finnish guys. It's on YouTube. Yeah, who did win it? Parker won it, I think. I don't, I'm pretty sure Parker won it, but I, I remember seeing something about that. Uh, Jason Payne, was he involved in that as well? I'm not sure. He he might have been. I kept, I was going to ask, though, did they ask you to be in it? No, I never, oddly enough, I never even uh, got contacted for that. Well, I was going to say, shit, you'd think you'd want the defending champ in there, but... Um, so that just shows what kind of... Uh, what kind of... Uh, what kind of show it was, right? They're just... They're just putting an offshoot. Like, it wasn't really something of any integrity. Well, it's just, yeah. It, well, I know I remember Swanson just saying, he goes, oh, shit, it's a free trip to Europe. How many chances? When, when am I going to have this opportunity again, right? And it was just like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go fight while I'm over there too. But, hey, I think he took his chick and stuff and whatever, had a good time. But, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, what an event. Actually, I'd love, man, I mean, it would never happen in this day and age with the with the way uh, the PC culture is and everything now. I mean, but uh, did you get any, like, was there any backlash on you for that? No, uh, not at all, actually. And what was actually, was pretty neat. uh, I never got any money for it, obviously. But uh, for a long time, I think up until like two or three years ago, um, not Equifax, what's the other... uh, What's the other company that offers credit uh, information? You know, you got me. Equifax. Uh, there's I, another. There's another company that gives you like your credit feedback. Okay. So, anyways, online they would have this picture saying, "Okay, just as an example, uh, Equifax," and there was a picture of me uh, from the hockey enforcer, just my my face, and. Uh, they had that rolling for years, and I bet you I had over a hundred messages from friends and family and whatever saying, "Is this you? I think it's you," and it was. And I ended up contacting them uh, to see if I could 
get any cash from them, and they said, no, you signed your rights away when you signed for the uh, the hockey enforcers, which was fine. No big deal. Uh, well, I was going to say, did you get any money from the DVD purchases of that thing? No, not at all. And what's hilarious about it is how we both uh, – so originally, whatever, I bought them at Walmart or something like that, and then my wife was at Giant Tiger and uh, seen the same, whatever, $12 DVD on sale for $2, and she ended up buying 20 of them or something like that, uh, which is hilarious. That's when you know you've hit rock bottom when your DVD end, ends up at 2 bucks. Well, you're, you're in the Giant Tiger uh, yeah, $2 bin. I know it was here. I bought about five or six of them, I remember, because... Uh, because, yeah, because like I said, this is just like last year or two years ago. So, I mean, you're talking, you know, 12, 15, 10 years after the event. But, uh, yeah, no, I ended up, uh, yeah, I was, I was giving them away all over to all my Twitter followers and stuff. Yeah, it was, uh, but, uh, well, okay. Well, what a segue. We go to DVDs and movies and things in the bargain bin. You had a very unique experience one summer. The movie The Love Guru starring Michael Myers and Justin Timberlake. Um, yourself, Bob Probert, and Jim Thompson were involved in this. How did this all happen? Let's hear the story of the Love Guru. Oh, what a great what a great end to my career, really, as, as far as the story is concerned. So, Ryan Rasmussen, one of my best friends who uh, lives in Toronto, he, uh, he called me, and I believe it was early August, and said, hey, they're doing um, sorry. They're doing casting calls right now for uh, a movie for The Love Guru, and they need hockey players who have either uh, college, university, or, uh, um, you know, some sort of professional level experience or, or major junior. So uh, at the time, it was, it was perfect for me because I had just gotten out of school for, uh, uh, to be an iron worker, so I retired from hockey the year before and then went to be an iron worker and then got a call to do this when schooling was done and there was no work for me. So uh went to Toronto and went through three days of um, the casting calls, basically. And it was as simple as, like, novice drills where you skate out of the corner, stop at the blue line, do a couple crossovers or skate out of the corner with a puck and then shoot the puck. And they had cameras set up all over the ice, and I was the first one picked for the L.A. Kings in that uh, movie. And I think it was uh, maybe two weeks into the uh, the actual training camp where we run through all the choreographed drills. Uh, Jim Thompson said, hey, I'm going to do a legend tournament with uh, Provo this weekend. I'll tell him you said hi. And I said, actually... I don't even know him. Like I'm from Windsor, Ontario, Amherstburg, Ontario, and I never met him before. And he's been an idol of mine, you know, my whole life. I'd love to meet him. And he's like, "Well, I'll tell him you said hi, anyways." And then, lo and behold, he ended up coming back that Monday, back to training camp, and brought Bob Probert with him. Night. Well, so well, there you go. How was Bob? Oh, uh, unbelievable! I mean, like what a what a way for me to end my career it was such a uh such an incredible experience i mean uh bob and i were the only two people on the on the film from uh windsor ontario so we drove back and forth together and just it was just such a crazy beautiful experience for me to uh 
you know, be sitting in the same vehicle with him for four hours at a time or, you know, sharing a hotel room together or just, you know, chatting about life or having breakfast together. I mean, to me, out of all the different things that I'd, uh, I'd accomplished, that was one of my favorite memories ever. And it will always go down in history as one of my favorite memories because, you know, we never necessarily talked about, you know, fighting to depths that I did with other uh, minor league tough guys or in Quebec with the other guys on the team. We talked about life, and uh, Bob is someone that, when I got to know him, he was such an authentic person in in so many different ways and being uh, honest to a fault. I mean, uh, you know, he had his own issues with uh, with whatever whatever everyone knows about, but it wasn't because he had demons. It was just because he wanted to have a good time. He just wanted to have a good time, and he was just the way he was. And, you know, you look at a guy like Sarah Flurry or other uh, guys who've had issues with the narcotics and whatnot, they all had demons. They had, they had skeletons in the closet. Bob didn't. He was just so authentic and just wanted to have fun and just was relaxed. Like, he didn't care if it was mustard stain on his jeans and he was just so real all the time, which was such a beautiful thing for me to experience and 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 meet and and uh, be a part of his life. Yeah, well, yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I mean, that'd be just a fanboy. I'd, I'd just be fanboying out. I'd he'd be so sick of me. I'd be. I would have talked to Zeroff asking him all the questions. But uh, in terms of like, uh, like, I mean, obviously, you guys would have talked hockey at some point. Throw out some. Did he tell you any stories or? Uh, you know, that you could share? Like, I, I know there was a couple guys you said he wasn't real big fans of. I mean, uh, do you want to get into that or we going to? Yeah, he was, I, I don't mind. Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't a huge fan of Bershear. He, uh, he broke into it a little bit, but it was pretty much on the same, uh, the same tones as what I had mentioned earlier. He just, Bershear wasn't a guy that would, would square off and go fair with people. He wanted to, tie you up and, and, you know, put your jersey over your head or get you into a situation, he would never just stand there and go open and trade power for power, which really, at the end of the day, I mean, what a better way to test yourself as a tough individual than going up against the toughest opposition and just trading, just going punch for punch. Look at look at Morassi Yablonski. Look at Morassi Bosse. Look at, you know, some of the, the, the biggest heavyweights out there. Their best fights were the ones that they just went all out. And we can watch those over and over and over a hundred times. And we're like, that's a fucking man right there. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the, I mean, that's, yeah, like you said, what a, what a dream as a, as a fan growing up. And then you get to hang out with them for a, for a lot, for a couple months and, and be getting paid to do it. I mean, that's living the dream right there. But uh, a couple other characters, of course, the, story, the star of the movie was Austin Bowers himself, Mike Myers. Um, now, I've heard, you know, through the little TMZ gossips and everything else, and I've heard actually from a number of different whatever, that he's a, he's a dickhead, which makes me sad because he's a Canadian boy too. That kind of bugs me. But what were your experiences with him? Oh, dude, Darren, we're on the same page with that, man, 100%. Uh, 
both uh, or myself, Jimmy, Jim Thompson, and uh, Prober, like we couldn't wait to to meet him and you know you know take a picture with him or something like that because it was such a cool experience to be a part of that. But oh, yeah. I will tell you this, and this was this was pretty offsetting. But uh, when we all first signed our contract to be a skilled extra, which is what we were, uh, we were all told, you know, don't look at him, don't stare at him, don't uh, ask him to come to your brother's, you know, birthday party or blah blah blah. Or don't ask him for pictures. So we didn't. And then towards the end of it, we're like, you know, it would be pretty cool to be have a picture with uh, Mike Myers. So. We were doing a government scene, which is a government bar in uh, uh, Toronto, uh, big bar scene that we were doing. And it was like, I think there was only two more weeks worth of filming that we had to do. So me, Bob Probert, and Jim Thompson went over to his, uh, Mike Myers' uh, uh, trailer. And uh, we, at, we knocked on the door and tried to get our pictures taken with him. And then one of his little helpers came out and said, Mike's in character right now. He doesn't really want to great character but he's a fan of yours probably meaning more uh Probert and Thompson but uh you know he said uh you know sorry but he can't take a picture with you right now and I was like I don't know I was kind of put off by that as I know Bob was and Jimmy was but uh yeah guys like uh Timberlake well here that's my next one so one of the biggest let's be honest one of the biggest famous people in the world is Justin Timberlake so what was the, what was he like? He was like like uh, one of the guys you take a bus with. Like he was like the, uh, just an average guy, a beauty, absolute beauty, but didn't put himself on any sort of a pedestal. Which I want to mention briefly that uh, Bob was like that too. Bob Probert was like that on such an amazing level. I mean, as popular he as he was throughout the world. Uh, he would he would stop at any given time and sign an autograph for anyone. It didn't matter if he was late. Didn't matter where we were. He didn't he didn't care about himself enough, and and he he cared more about the fans. And uh, Justin Timberlake, he was super super cool. Like those guys all had the opportunity to get their own dressing room and change in their own dressing room. Justin Timberlake sat in our dressing room and changed with us and got along with us like two peas in a pod. Well, you said he could skate all right too. Yeah, he he, he must have played some uh, uh, some hockey growing up because he was actually a really good skater. Actually, there was uh, there was a funny part. In, it's in the deleted scenes of the movie. Uh, he's going after Romney Malco of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I was holding him back. And uh, we did like four or five takes. Then he, he brought me aside. He's like, "Hey, don't pull so hard on me because." I got to act. So just, just kind of act a little bit instead of pulling me so hard. Cause it's hard for me to act and then, you know, try and pull away from you at the same time. So yeah, you can see that in the, uh, in the deleted scenes. It was pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Did he, uh, did he mess around with you guys? Like, did he like, you know, say, show me how to fight or something? Like, did he ask you guys anything? No, man. He was, uh, like I said, he was pretty, like, he was really legit. Like he came out there and did his role and like was interactive in just like kind of shooting the breeze and cracking jokes with us. But you know, nothing, uh, nothing too, uh, too crazy as far as telling any stories like that, but he was super, super cool. Like just down to earth and like, didn't, didn't put himself on any sort of a pedestal, which was really nice for us to see. 
Oh, that's awesome. I, I tell my I tell my wife about because we had talked about the obviously we had talked about this last couple of days, but I was saying I don't know why, but for some reason when you told me on the phone that Timberlake was a really nice guy, for some reason it made me really happy. I don't know why, but it was just because <laughs> it's not like I'm some I'm not a fan of his music or anything, but it was just like I don't know why, but I, although he's hilarious on SNL, I love his SNL spots. He's great. Yeah, yeah. but uh, no, I mean, well, well, there you go. Like what a what a way to wrap it up, man. I mean, you know, with all the stories, and like I said, I could talk to you for hours and hours about all the fights, and I certainly hope you come back on the show, because there's a lot more stuff we, we can talk about for sure, but uh, but what a way to what, to kind of, like you said, to bookend the career, right? You start your late bloomer, and uh, you wrap things up by hanging out with Bob Probert and Justin Timberlake in a goddamn Hollywood movie. I mean, who gets to say yeah. that? Honestly, even hearing you say that just gives me goosebumps because, like, like we had talked about on the phone before the podcast. Like, my success was short was was a short window. Like, I had success in junior, but when I really ended up putting it all together, it was too late for me to make American Hockey or make the uh, uh, the American League or make the NHL. So, uh, I just had to kind of. You know, and then I started breaking my hand, so it was kind of, you know, what what am I going to do now? And then when I did the when I did the Hawking Forces, or sorry, uh, after the Hawking Forces, when I did the movie with uh, Bob, what a great way to end it all and just put a smile on my face and you know make some incredible connections and uh, relationships and have a really good time doing it before I ended up with a career job. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, you lived the dream, man, and. Uh... Yeah, no, that was, well, and then, okay, speaking of the boxing and everything, I know you, we, wow, man, I feel bad we didn't even get into that, but, yeah, I mean, for the longest time in Quebec in the summers, they would have the promoters, this is how slick these guys are, I mean, you guys are big names in the in the area, they'd have you guys box, and like you said, you'd box Dubé and Thero, and you boxed, well, here, tell the bossy boxing story. <laughs> um, the truck thing, that was oh, hilarious. It was so crazy, so, uh, um, so the, the boxing promoters in, uh, Quebec, they were so smart. So what they did is, uh, they would take a bunch of amateur boxers, local boxers, and then put them on a card. And then they would take these, uh, heavyweight tough guys from different teams and then put them on as the main event, which would draw in a shit ton of hockey fans. So you, you would potentially bring in an extra thousand to 3000 fans to one single event because you were bringing in all these hockey tough guys. Yep. Um, and it was for, for me personally, it was a great way to stay in shape in the off season and then also train to something that was going to help me in my next year moving forward. Um, and then it was also something that I excelled at and did well against where, uh, with hockey, I just, I was never a good hockey player. Like it took me, a ridiculous amount of work to gain any sort of skill and talent. Like it was just like so much work where boxing was something that just came naturally to me. And I loved, you know, okay, you can have three or four fights through the summertime, make a couple grand per fight and, you know, collect unemployment until your next season started. It was the best way to stay in shape and, uh, you know, have some fun throughout the summertime. But, uh, yeah, I boxed, Ontario twice. I boxed uh, 
Bosse, I think once, maybe twice. I boxed Dubé six times, Varhog once, uh, Parker once. And the, the Bosse story is hilarious because like I was telling you earlier, like we lived in the same town and he was the local guy. And I was the fan favorite that came from outside, like, you know, came from Ontario. But still, he was still the local, uh, you know, the local guy that everyone loved and grew up with. So when he started breaking into the league, uh, you know, there was a t- he had a ton of support behind him, and I was no one at that point. But uh, he called me at some at one uh, one summer and said, "Hey, uh, I want to ask you permission. Is it okay if I take if I uh, take you on in a, in a boxing match?" And I was like, "Oh, no problem." We were training at the exact same boxing club uh, at Perfecto Gym, so we had to pick different time slots. And let's say our camp was eight weeks long. Uh, as that camp went on, uh, it got more serious and more serious. Started out very amicable and very friendship-like. And then as time went on, we wanted to kill each other. And then come the night of the event, uh, he rolled in on a flatbed uh, trailer behind an old hot rod uh, truck. And he's a lumberjack, like I was telling you earlier. So he fired up a chainsaw, and they had this huge seven-foot poster of me, this wooden poster, and he cut the poster in half with the chainsaw to start before the, the fight. <laughs> oh, like, 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 honestly, like, if you consider that, like, let's just think about that. Is there any other hockey professional hockey league in the world that has anything even close to that kind of story, right? Oh, yeah. No, well, yeah, exactly. And to top off, you didn't, you won the fight, though, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. I broke his nose pretty good, and I had a broken right hand at the time, so I couldn't throw heavy right. So the trainer that I was working with before that fight, we really worked on my left hand. Uh, yeah, but uh, it was an event nevertheless. There was, I think there was like close to 4,000 people that went there to watch it. So I've, I've it was the, fun. I've seen the video, yeah. It was uh, maybe not of that one, but I know you guys drew big crowds for sure, and I know the payday was pretty decent too. Um I know John fought uh, in the cage there. Did you have any thoughts of MMA, or are you just going to stick to boxing? No, I never uh, I never got into the MMA at all. Uh, I loved boxing, and I excelled at it. But it was one of those things that uh, th- there's just too much involved with uh, MMA that I, I haven't had a part uh, – I haven't been a part of yet. So uh, I'm still actually actively – boxing i have a boxing match coming up in drumheller alberta september 7th and myself and uh two partners eric uh Pappos and tyler trombley we're opening our own boxing club called titans boxing club in cold lake here september 1st is when we're going to open well that's awesome hey is this going to be on pay-per-view can we see dean mayrad box in drumheller well i don't know if you can help make that happen we might be able to do it well, hey, we we might have to work in. We got to look into this event situation here. Um, all right, man. Well, I know I've I know we've talked uh, for a really long time here. I know you had shit to do, so I'm not going to keep you any longer. But uh, we'll definitely. Uh, I, I I'd love to have you come back on the show because this was this was great. Yeah, and honestly, Darren, I uh, like I said earlier at the start of the podcast, I love what you're doing. I love that you're offering. Uh, the minor league guys a platform to tell their stories because 
We have good stories too. Yes, you and, do. Uh, you have the best stories. I, uh, I actually like. I've listened. I'm, I'm probably one of your biggest fans right now, as far as listening to all your podcasts, and I love your outlook on the current status of uh, where this is all sitting today, for lack of better words. But uh, uh, yeah, keep, keep doing what you're doing because uh, I, I think you'd be surprised at how many people actually really, really appreciate what you're doing. No, oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And like I said, I, I'm doing it to get your guys' stories out there, and, and maybe for some listeners that you know don't know who Dean Mayrad is and what you did, they do now. And uh, it was great, man. You had a hell of a ride, and uh, I was, you know, and I'm not just blowing smoke now, but going back in the day, like I, like I said, talking to my buddy Kurt and stuff, I was always a, a huge fan of yours, and uh, no, so this has been a real treat for me to the last couple week or two to bullshit with you on the phone and just trade texts and stories and uh no this has been great man i i completely uh i can't thank you enough for coming on anytime man okay right on darren thanks for having me on man all right i'll let you go thanks dean i appreciate it have a good night you too man thank you bye And you people that don't like fighting, how many of you did you walk out and get a coffee while that was 